0: Like, you don't know your game until you can finish your game, Mm -hmm. and that's when you know what to change about your game. And it's very (laughs) frustrating to funding people and producers. It's a conundrum, right? Like, I'm gonna wanna change the game when the game's finished. Why? Because now I'll be able to see the game.
1: Everybody, This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Harvey Smith, best known for his work on the Deus Ex and Dishonored series. This episode was recorded on March 23, 2022, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. <music> Is this supposed to be a round table room? I can't imagine. This room is cavernous. Like, I've done some GDC talks,
0: and some of them went OK, and some of them I thought were good. And I've done a couple of panels, and I think those generally go well with me. Yep. Um, and I've done a few paired talks, which I think I do pretty well with Matthias Vorch, and Raphael, and Randy did one with me at one point. Yep. But I have done a panel, or I've done a roundtable, and I'm terrible at them. Okay. And everybody left it at saying, I was like, I asked my friend Clint Hawking, I was like, how do you think it was? he was like, honestly, not very good. And I was just crushed. <laughs> Will Wright went to it, and I was walking That's down hard. the hall. I was walking down the hall with Will Wright, and I was like, what would you think of the panel? Because it was called Counterintuitive Creative Direction. And he goes, well, it convinced me I never want to be a creative director. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I don't even know what to make of that. Like, you know, it's like... Oh, crushing! Yeah. So I don't I don't do round, at round tables, I think very well. But. Different different skill
1: sets. Yeah, totally. Like,
0: cool.
1: Um, cool. So what I usually like to start out with is, what's the first video game that you remember?
0: Um, yeah, that's interesting. I just turned 55, and I probably Pong. The neighbor across the street had a Pong machine, and. If you remember that, you remember those dials or those wheels? And, you know, memory is tricky, right? I'm now going back like 45 years or something. But, like, there's a very visceral, like, memory of how easy they move, but occasionally they would make this, like, slightly grinding sound, maybe if they weren't oiled or graphited enough or something. But, like, I have this distinct memory of those devices back then, you know. And the TV, of course, the crappy TVs that we used to have that were huge, almost cubes, and the display, you know. um, And that was somehow compelling enough where we would sit there for hours and play this, I don't even like tennis. I don't even (laughs) like to watch tennis or play tennis or anything, but somehow we would just sit there and play the Pong. And then at some point, a neighbor got an Atari 2600. And then I got a, one of my best friends had one, and he had a ton of cartridges. And then I got one. And the, you know, the Atari cartridges were good at the time. But the like there was a company called Imagic, I think. I think that was it. And then there was, you know, Activision cartridges and just magical stuff. And of course, we'd go to the grocery store, and I was a poor kid in Texas. I'd be in cutoff shorts and no shoes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, parents would go shopping for groceries or grandparents. And up at the front of the store by the Double doors to keep the mosquitoes or the air conditioning in or out or whatever. There was a set of arcades: Phoenix and Dragon's Lair and yep. uh, you know Defender. Robotron was one of my favorites. And we would stand there and play those and just pump quarters into them that we had dug out of couch cushions. Yeah, I was going to say, how
1: did you, how did you, that was a challenge for me as a kid, how did you scrounge <laughs> up the quarters for arcade games?
0: Yeah, because the boomer parents and stuff, they were not into the idea of kids just pumping quarters into those machines. That's the word they would use, pumping. I would hear all the time, like, you're not just going to pump quarters into that machine. Four of those is a dollar. Yeah. And so I would mow yards, um, you know, whatever to make the money and uh, beg for my grandmother Um do you those use low
1: yards and the money would go all into the arcade games?
0: Most of it, yeah. yeah. What else is a kid? A comic books and, yeah, comic and, books uh, and uh, occasionally like a burger or pizza or whatever. But, um, you know, and I would say that first game I remember is Pong. And I would say all of those were meaningful. Uh, and But I've said this before, but there was something about the Atari 2600 cartridge adventure mm-hmm. by... Warren Robinette yep. that lit me up in a way that nothing else did. Yep. One of my good friends, he was in games for a long time, I don't know if he still is or not, but uh, Billy Joe Kane, I grew up in the same neighborhood with these two guys that are in games. Steven Powers, Steve Powers, who worked on Deus Ex and Dishonored with me and all that, we we're very close still. But we we worked, we grew up in this town on the Gulf Coast in Texas with Billy Kane. And he was the Texas Stargate Defender champion. He he won at our local 7-Eleven. He went on to the regionals. He went on to the area. He went on to the state level, and he could literally like vibrate his thumbs, mm-hmm. and like that's how he would like you know hit the buttons. And, and so he was a he was a phenom at a defender, and literally won a Stargate machine and had it in his bar- bedroom. It barely <laughs> fit. It like lit Jeez. up the room at night like a nightlight. And wow. we would go over to his house. That must have door. been, like, amazing. Like, this, yeah, I got this machine that I can play as round. much as I want. Yeah, yeah. It was Willy Wonka amazing, yeah. Because <laughs> the door was open, and you could just, like, hit the button and add yourself another quarter. You didn't pay for it, of course. Yeah. Uh, and we would just play, you know. And he could literally roll those machines. Yeah. Like, with Defender, if you're not careful, you could build the score all the way up to the programmers had not accounted for another digit. And if you... Uh, if you or i think it was extra ships i'm thinking not right. score okay. actually and if you if you ha- piled up the max number of ships and rolled it over it went back to 1, one. and then if you died yep uh, you would be screwed or whatever <laughs> so there was like all these but in the way that that game lit him up um adventure did that to me and i would just play it over and over even though if you think about it now in terms of like here are some system dynamics and you can reconfigure these in a handful of ways or some permutations, but they're not endless permutations. There are only so many rooms. There's only a few options. There's only a few objects. There's only a few creatures, but it just felt like I could see, I could feel, you know, my influence over those few elements and the randomization, the system itself playing it sort of with me. Um, it just felt magical somehow. And that was you know, Dungeons and Dragons has been probably the biggest influence on my life. There's probably really brainy people out there that if you ask them, you know, what's the biggest influence on your life, you know, they would say, oh, when I was 10 years old, I read Solzhenitsyn or whatever, you know, and, right. and it sounds great, you know, but like yeah. for me, it was like, I started playing D&D the night of my 11th birthday, I still routinely play. I play with people from all over the industry, I play two or three times a week sometimes. That's yep. great.
1: Um, you know, I've done a lot of these podcasts now, right? And yeah. I gotta say that the one that comes up most often is definitely Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Like, it's it's the theme. You know, even for even for design, like some people make RPGs. You know, I talked to Josh Sawyer, and it's like, yeah, no surprise, you play <laughs> you D and D. But for all sorts of all sorts of designers, like it's pretty common. Right. So it's, yeah, it'd be great to hear what your background is with it.
0: Yeah. So uh, the night of my eleventh birthday at winter camp. I started playing d and I'd heard about it from some other friends, and I was staying with these guys that I didn't normally camp with, but one of them I was close to. And um, we were on a, under a pavilion. It was cold, field jackets and stuff like that, uh, and shorts, of course, with knee-high socks, because you, you. this is like as much an 80s movie as you could possibly make it this scene, right? right. It was 1977 or something like that. and. We sat on a picnic table under a little pavilion and we played D&D for the first time. And halfway through the game, like this guy that couldn't be there, he had to work at like one of those steak places, one of the cheap steak places, like Bonanza or Golden Corral or something. He showed up and he had loaded the trunk of his station wagon down with these styrofoam crates just full of steaks and fries and stuff smothered in gravy that he had just taken from work. And we'd been at camp for a week, we were ravenous. And so we just stood there the back of the station wagon like zombies with our hands, tearing the steak apart, eating it. We went back <laughs> to play d and and it was just such a good memory, you know, yeah. for being 11 years old. Um, yeah, but there's something about the social environment and the creative environment uh, and we can be playing at a, a bad time, like, you know, it's really good for the West Coast people, it's really bad for me. Uh, and I could be falling asleep because I, I'm the guy that gets up sometimes at 3 or 5 in the morning, which is a curse. I don't like it, but sometimes it happens. And we can go into combat or we can hit a threatening situation or a puzzle or something like that. And my mind is wide awake suddenly. Yeah. All ADD, distraction, anxiety, everything is gone. It's like a drug. I am focused on the problem. I'm having a good time. Uh, even if someone else solves the problem, right. I'm listening along. It's great, you know. Uh, And sometimes dialogue scenes do that as well, or social interaction inside the game or whatever. Sometimes big visual descriptions, like when the DM really stops and describes the the situation and you can practically hear the wind howling or whatever, and it's, uh, we play in a variety of different settings. Um, And I play with some great people, you know. I play with Jordan Thomas, who was on the Bioshock series. I play with uh, Carla Zamanji, who is part of Gone Home. and the, the, the general creativity um, and dedication to it is very high. But over many years of playing a couple of nights a week together, you just get closer and closer. It's like a, anything—a card game night, you know, with your friends or whatever. Yeah,
2: I can already imagine you being a great DM. Like uh, the way you describe that scene yeah. with the smell, <laughs> <and> the <cry. laughs>
0: roll oh, initiative. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I didn't mean to take it away from video games. I just um, no, it's, it's the idea is totally applicable. Though. Yeah, it's I mean, it's board
2: games are also like a heart, yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. like the, the 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 core for designer well, I yeah. think.
0: Totally. Yeah, yeah, like you know, there's just so much to talk about. Like hey, video games are cool. R- visual representation is cool. Lighting's cool. Sound's cool. I like all that. I'm playing Elden Ring right now and it's a masterpiece. Comes along games like this come along once every 10 years. Yeah, It's so, brilliant. Um but the truth is I kind of make shooters, but I'm not interested in the shooter part. Sure, I kind of like try to take the shooter and move it into a world where you can listen and explore and observe and, you know, follow somebody. And, you know, like it, it, it's 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 like really, uh, you know, what if D&D and first-person shooters had a baby or something. It's kind of like from the games I fell in love with really, even the one-tile-at-a-time games. Um, Back in the late 80s like dungeon master or captive or blood witch or eye the beholder all those right. games where you can move one tile at a time they had a resurgence not that long right. ago mm-hmm. there was a really good one that someone did you know it was like it's it was nostalgic for me you know but and then looking glass made underworld and it right. was like the ultimas were already cool you know all that object interaction and story meets combat and all that stuff um but like Underworld was the smooth scrolling version of all those and it was just so powerful for me. There was a, I told in the panel yesterday, the immersive sim level design panel, I asked one of the questions was like, was there a moment for you as level designers who work in immersive sims where you knew this was your genre? And some people didn't have that moment. They had other kind of oblique answers that I thought were interesting. Uh, But a couple people had that moment. And for me, there was a puzzle in Underworld where you get to this big inverted ziggurat and you can't get to the other side of the room uh, because the ledge over on the other side is too high to jump. If you go down in, you, you can't get up there. You have to, on the wall, there's some wheels or dials or something. And you have to put them all in different positions to get exactly the right. As you turn them, you see the cigarette changing. And that's because, like, the programmers and level designers at the time could do things like, move bsp objects in and out of each other so they could make a ziggurat puzzle right Right. i don't know some sort of door basically um and i looked at it and i hate puzzles like that i'm not that person yeah and so i mess with it for a minute i messed it up even worse
1: it's like a missed puzzle or something like that right
0: yeah i'm just not that guy and so i I was like, wait a second, I have the levitation spell. What if I just cast levitate, which you can't, doesn't allow you to go vertically, but it just allows you to move, and I'll cast it and cross the room. And I got to the other side, and they had raised the other lip by like a few inches just to prevent this. Oh, really? So you just okay. bumped against it, and I was so uh-huh. frustrated. But then I was like, well, let me back up. And I went back to the other side, and I jumped. And at the apex of the jump, yep. I cast levitate. And then I just moved across by the ceiling and dropped on the other side. And I felt like a rock star, yep. like me alone in my room, nobody else around, lights out, playing this game that I loved so much, and I had like exploited the systems, and right. that was like something that clicked in my head, yep. and this is one of my favorite games of all time, and, and I can name, from all my favorite games, I can name moments like that, you know. Um, it's, a, not, it's
1: an interesting situation because you can, we can talk some there about like designer intent, right? Like apparently they, they thought that you shouldn't do that, but it's still a game you love because kind of, you know, player creativity was still enough in the DNA that it's it's still possible, right? Yeah,
0: systems and stuff. And and maybe they just didn't want you to do it the simple way. Maybe they wanted you sure. to think about jumping or something. It seems hacky, but whatever. And, you know, all of our games have had the same thing. I remember the, the infamous example in Deus Ex of you could attach the proximity mines to walls, right. like lamprey style, but we left collision on them. So you could hop up on them, even if like one pixel of collision was there, your your collision box could stand on that. Mm-hmm. And because you could remove your mines from the wall, people would get two of them, and they would stick one to the wall, hop up on it, stick the other one a little higher, hop up to it, reach back, get the first one, and with two mines they could climb out of any level that we made, basically. And we just thought it was brilliant. You know, it's like so fun. It broke the game sometimes, but it was so fun. Um, and so I all those games, early games like Thief. I had an anecdote that I alluded to yesterday that was the same kind of thing, and our games, people have done that too, and it's kind of wonderful. Uh, Layla mentioned, uh, you mentioned board games, and I'm not the world's biggest board gamer. Like People always assume that about me. Oh, you're like some sort of game designer, you must love board games. I'm like, I kind of do. If someone will sit and explain the rules and I don't have to read a 300-page manual, and it is not going to take six hours to complete and we're never going to finish it anyway. If there's something novel about it, then yeah. So over the history of my time around games, I've loved the same things everybody else has loved. Like, oh, let's play Citadel or let's play Settlers yep. of Catan or, you know, whatever. But there is something so valuable in it. I, I You know, like I remember the moment where I realized early in Settlers, these resources are extremely valuable, and later in Settlers... Right, they're less valuable. Yeah, they're less valuable. Yeah, and the other thing that was less mm-hmm. important is now yep. pivotal. And I thought that was super, over the arc of that game, of a one-hour session or whatever, that's a super pivotal yep. or a super interesting uh, swing.
1: Yeah, because trading games are only,
0: interest, are only interesting if you can never do like-for-like like comparisons,
1: right? Like yeah. if everything's basically the same value and it's like not interesting, right? Like everything has to have some sort of fundamental different use.
0: Yeah, like something something contextually gives it a different l- l- use, or a different phase of the game does, or something. Like if I was going to design a board game, which I don't think would be a good idea, but if I ever was, I would have to have something like a day-night cycle or something like right. that because I think that would instantly make it more interesting for me personally. But but it's the same with like sports and stuff. Like I'm not a sports guy either. Um, I believe. I came to it late, but I believe very much in fitness because it's helped my life a lot personally, my anxieties, my ADD, my physical health. Um, And I've neglected it since probably November, but normally I work out four or five times a week. Um, But that said, I'm not a big sports guy. But occasionally if you get into a sport with friends and you study the rules or whatever, I, I just remember people like, you'll hear the average football player once in a while going, you know, it'd be cool if they gave more points for kicking a field goal from further away. Right. Like less from up close and further from, and then game designers will look at that and go like, do you realize the bizarre (laughs) things that would happen if every other mechanic in this game is all about driving toward the enemy goal and getting every inch, getting closer and closer and closer. But suddenly you're putting people in a situation on the fly where it might be better they might win the game if they fall back right. and they lose 20 yards because they know their kicker might be able to make or whatever. And so there's a reason they answer fans periodically. This, our game designers think that's a bad idea. You know, yeah. It's funny to think of the NFL as having game designers. I assume they oh, do, sure. you know. But yep. uh, um, yeah, so.
2: Do you sleep better? Uh, you said that you have like a curse. You wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. In some, do you sleep yeah. better with, uh, with the new regimen and the uh, exercise?
0: Um, you know, I don't think that matters. That's not what has made a difference. Um, I, you know, if anything, one of the problems I'll have is like eight 30 rolls around and I just, my eyes just close and I'll be having conversation with people that want to stay up till 11 or whatever. I'm just like, I'm down and I will fall deeply asleep almost immediately. And then two hours later, I'm wide awake and everyone in the house is like, (laughs) sacked out, you know, Okay. and so I will often wake up at one or three or something and I'll be awake for like two hours or three hours and then I'll go back to sleep.
1: I've heard that's actually the more natural human sleeping pattern. Yeah. That like thousands of years ago, people would wake up for two hours in the middle of the night because of Uh, course things got dark at like five o'clock.
0: I think it was even more recent than that. I've read that like the Victorians had um, special pajamas that they put on for the middle of the night and they'd sit on their porch and people would walk and uh, talk or you know, engage in whatever activity, have a snack, have sex, like, and then at some point they'd go back to sleep, and it was just like a natural thing. People had two sleeps, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's probably factories and city lights yep. and alarm uh, clocks, the nine to five yep. that has made us think that we need. Yeah. yeah. Sure, you probably need eight hours or seven or eight hours or nine hours or whatever you need, but do you really need consecutive? You know. Yeah. The bigger the bigger problem with it is if you wake up at like four and you can't go back to sleep and then that night at like nine o'clock people you have responsibilities and it's just miserable right but let me uh let
1: me ask one something because I want to get back to kind of the you know you're talking about the you know the games that are interesting you I'm trying to figure out where kind of fit the timeline of your life right so you know you're playing games growing up really into them right did you at all imagine becoming a video game designer was that just a crazy concept
0: Um, Yeah, I I hope you ask everybody that question because I think it's interesting. Um, And the reason I think it's interesting is because I had this particular experience. I, um, you know, not to get into the whole thing because I I think it feels like, um, it feels like all about me or whatever. But like I've said before, like, you know, I grew up in a a small town on the Texas Gulf Coast, uh, all chemical plants and shrimpers and stuff like that. My mom was 15 when I was born. Uh, She OD'd in front of me when I was six and died. My dad was violent. He eventually killed himself. He was a welder in a chemical plant. So I never went to college, like, really. I I picked up classes here and there. I would take classes that I liked. Like, Mm -hmm. there was a lit class in Germany that I took when I was in the military that changed my life, you know, uh, art history class here or there. I love that. Psychology stuff. Anything I liked, I would would take. Anything I didn't like, I would fail, basically, or avoid. but there was this weird thing about being a kid in that environment or that that kind of town, where you. I, this sounds so strange. It's so hard for people to get the, to understand this. You literally can't conceive of being something like that. Right. You look around in the world. And my grandfather was a barber. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother. They had, they had, raised you
1: after that. Does that? No,
0: happen? he he. Uh, my father killed himself later, so I would lived oh, with okay. him most of my childhood. Okay, okay. but. And, and the five women he married, by the way. Okay. But, um, but, like, in my family, like, one grandfather was a car salesman, um, and he was, like, a shady dude. Um, another one was a barber. Barbara. Yeah. Uh, one of my grandmothers was, like, one of the first executives at Dow, uh, first woman executives at Dow. She huh. worked in freight claim, uh-huh. which when a train car goes off the track and you lose a bunch of merchandise, you have to sue them for it or whatever. Okay. Um, But that was, those were like anomalies. Most people worked at like literally a convenience store or they were a welder at the chemical plant or they drove a truck or something like that. And that was kind of the range of jobs that I was exposed to. And you know, meanwhile, kids growing up in, I don't know, Santa Monica or wherever, like they had this concept that the guys down the road write code and make this game. And that, that leap is really hard to understand that kids can't make that sometimes, that the people in New York are writing comic books and drawing comic books or inking them, and and that they're being printed in this location and shipped to retail, or that whole process where then you go, a light bulb goes on and you're like, you mean I could just sit down and write a comic book? Right. Yes, you could, and um, there was a moment when I was a kid, uh, actually, it, it still didn't happen for me. Uh, there was a moment as a kid where I realized people wrote books, and you could write a book. So I started writing stories, right? And, okay. I, and I started trying to do my own pen and paper RPG materials. Right. But I literally, like, left home, didn't have a degree, like I said, I left home, I went into the military, because that was a way to escape that kind of area, right? Yeah. How and old? I, I was 20, because I waited for my ex-wife, high school sweetheart at the time, to graduate high school. She had two more years, so I just hung out at home. Um, when she was 18 and I was 20, we got married and I joined the military and I went off. I, would, I lived in Germany. It was life-changing because sure. I suddenly was exposed to all these different kinds of people and all these different ideas and I got to take classes and it yeah. was really cool. Um, and then I got out of the military because I didn't want to stay in the military. And I had, I'd enlisted for six years. And a friend of mine, those two friends I mentioned before, yeah. one of them had a band in Austin, Billy. And Steve had moved to Austin to support the band. And then Steve, because he was an artist, he was an artist and a narrative guy, a writer, a good dungeon master, you know, that, things like that. Um, and he ended up as a brilliant level designer. and He still works for Arcane. But, like, he had moved to Austin to support Billy's band. Right. And I was trying to get out of the military. And one of the things about the military is when you're about to separate out, they they just say put an address on this form and we'll ship your stuff anywhere you want. Like really anywhere, you know? And it's like any practically anywhere. Yeah. And so I was living in Florida, I think at the time, uh, and I was like, I have to pick a place, you know? And so I picked Austin and because my friend was there, you know, Steve and, my ex-wife and I, we, we moved to Austin.
1: Did you know Origin was in Austin? Because you must knew have nothing. known Origin, right?
0: No, I knew nothing. It's like, going
2: because Billy and Steve are in
0: Austin. I mean, you knew Origin's games, right? No, I oh, played really? games and I wasn't aware. That's another thing is like this concept that there are brands and companies. Like yeah. I just didn't have that awareness yet. Yeah. Um the personalities behind it, the guys who read the magazines. Cause some people did, obviously yep. people would, I, I have a subscription to this magazine or this horror cinema magazine or whatever. I, I just wasn't that person. Right. Uh, I was more clued in probably with like writers. Um, okay. But when I moved there, Steve was like, I have a job at this company origin. Um, and I think you'd be perfect you talk about video games more than anyone I've ever met yeah and you break things down and you're right and you're a dungeon master and like you'd, you'd be good at this and I said no way man there's no way <laughs> yeah. and I tried I, like six why yeah, did you say no way I just couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around it I, I was unemployed for six months I tried to get jobs I, in the military I was a satellite communications technician so I tried to get jobs related to that but obviously I wasn't into it and they could tell and so um, and so at some point, he, he basically convinced me to try. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I'll try to get a game designer job. Whatever. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, what I'll try is. to go to the moon. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's what it yeah, yeah. felt like, right? <laughs> and so there's a funny anecdote that I've told before, too. But, but it's like, for six months, I applied and I would do the dumbest things. Like, I had no parental coaching or modeling or any. Like, like if I meet a kid like me today, I can level them up in, like, sure. an hour conversation in, in mind-blowing ways. Um, nobody was like that at the time, right? So I'd literally, like, fill out an application and drop it off or whatever. It's just like you're never going to get a job doing that, right? Um, but I started playing on the company softball team. Oh, and I, because you had a friend. There. I had a friend right. or two in there. Okay. And I, started going into the conference rooms at night and playing D&D with them because that okay. happened. Well, that's a very good move. And that was a good move, yeah. yeah. And then eventually people would play, be playing Doom were you, and stuff were like you, that.
2: <laughs> were you, you being smart the, about this? Yeah, or did you just
1: bumbling
0: into it?
2: You're just like trying it's a to fight really the move. anxiety of the industry but just kind of like trying to see where you fit in from, from that angle? Like,
0: I think I was just hanging out with my friend, honestly. But, but let's wait for just a second to see whether it was a smart move. Like the last thing that I did was... Richard Garriott took a bunch of people skydiving in San Marcos. Uh-huh. And my friend was like, you should come with us. And I was like, no fucking way. I'm not, I can't afford it. I'm unemployed. And uh, I didn't make much money to begin with, but I was unemployed, which is even worse. Um, and, and like, I'm not invited. And someone literally said, Richard doesn't care. He, he, he just told us to grab our friends and let's go skydiving because he's into it right now. Yeah. And I think Richard was into it to the level where he had designed his own, whatever you call it, parachute suit or whatever, you know, that you can, when you go skydiving a lot, you can have your colors picked out and all that stuff. So we went up in these little planes and, and did the tandem jump thing where you would sit through a class for an hour and then you'd, you'd be in this tiny little plane and there's the pilot up there. And then there's like you and your tandem jump instructor person. And another one, another person who was going to jump from origin and their instructor on, and it, it's literally, we're further away right now in this podcast than we were in that plane. It, it's like you're all in a bathtub together almost. Yep. And the mind blowing thing is someone le- re- leans over and they slide the door open and they climb out onto the strut and their body is like hanging yep. behind the plane. And at some point they let go. And they're just gone, you know? And so when our turn came, we climbed out onto the strut, goggles, wind, you know, everything blowing. And the guy was like, you want to do flips? I was like, yeah. And so you let go. And the amazing thing from your perspective there is the plane just like, you know, right, gun off, falls away from you vertically in such a weird way. And we're from 9,500 feet, I think. And the farms look like, you know, sim city or civilization or something a little you know you can see the fence lines and where crops have been irrigated and where they haven't and all that and there's a 10-foot circle of gravel and no one in our group missed it that's how good modern parachutes are you pull on this side you pull on that side and uh anyway we went skydiving that day i still couldn't get a job nobody would hire me there the the writer jobs uh, you had to have experience publishing things sure and i had sold like one short story um and the game designer jobs, there literally weren't game designers sure. uh, at the time. There were quest builders and things like that. Uh, yeah, I think it originally back in the day, programmers did everything, of course. Yeah, yeah. Then they needed artists, and then they needed sound people. You were hired
1: them. for some skill,
0: basically. Right, and so they had a bunch of people like my friend Steve, who would take the pieces of all of this and they would they would make quests and missions and things like that. And they don't, I don't even know what they call them at the time. They they became a department. They they were probably Steve could tell me, they were probably like art assistants or something. But they they became called TDAs, uh, technical design assistant, because uh-huh. no one wanted them called game designers. Right. That was an affront to the engineers and to the artists and the people who huh. all thought of themselves as the game designers. Interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and conceptually in that model, the director of the game is probably the designer, the, the game and designer, everything right. is a piece of that, right? Yeah. So, but. And people at the time would joke that TDA didn't mean total uh, technical design assistant, it meant total dumbass. And that was, that was like the running joke at Origin. So, anyway, i had failed to get that job too. And like my you first. You jumped
2: from an airplane and you didn't get that job. I still job? didn't
0: get the job. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the softball team didn't help. The conference room, the schmoozing didn't help. The food didn't help. You it was know, a eating, good attempt, but. I would uh, eat a lot yeah. of crunch food with them. And so finally, my first boss in the industry was this woman, Kay Gilmore in QA. And she ran an ad in the paper that was like, wanted tester, $7 an hour. Sure. And I applied and I got that job. And I went and told the people that I knew now, all these people that I hung out with, guys, I'm going to start working with you. I got the job. And this dude looked at me across the table. We were eating crunch food or something. He was like, You don't work here? You know, it was this hilarious <laughs> moment. Uh, it
2: was this hilarious a security story.
0: breach kind of moment. <laughs> oh, no. You don't work here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it was amazing. And that was, I was a contractor for nine months after that folding table, clipboard, Uh 3DO machine, playing Wing Commander missions that I had pirated, you know, 10 years prior to that, or whatever, five years prior to that. Um,
2: How old were you at this? I was
0: 26, so I was older than everybody around me. There was a kid in our department, 17. Wow. And uh, he had like literally graduated high school early and his parents knew Richard or whatever. But, uh, and so that probably helped because it's really easy to look responsible uh, when you're a few years older. so, yeah, that's uh, that's how I got into games. Uh, All right, so uh, what? where did that lead to, like, uh, up next then? Yeah, so it was interesting. I don't know how applicable or transferable the skills are from then to now because, like, a bunch of stuff happened, right? Like, I got to work with Looking Glass for 10 months okay. because... I was testing some games, right? And they were some of them were good games, some of them were bad games. And I was pretty good at articulating what was wrong with the game. Sure. Like, look, we could talk about a thousand things here, but three things are killing us right now. And they're, here are the three things. And by the way, here's some ideas to make them better if you want. Here's yep. what other games do. Here's what I thought we could do. Um, and so I'd do that everywhere. And developers tended to like me. The teams liked yep, me. Sure. They kept trying to pull me away. Kay kept saying, no, no, no. One of the problems in QA back in the day was the developers would strip mine the QA team, like a farm team, uh-huh. and leave the QA department with the people that the developers didn't, didn't want, right. you know, and it was, it's a problem, right? And so uh, there were always talented people inside QA transferring out, which is cool, good for mobility, um, but Kay would make them make them let me keep them six months or a year or whatever, and one day I saw, again, back to not knowing who made games, I had played Ultima 7, Serpent Isle, I played Black Gate, you know, um, my friend Billy, when we were really young, the local mortician, uh, he had a daughter that we'd sometimes hang out with, we'd go to parties and stuff, and they had a pool because morticians apparently make a lot of money, uh, for a small town, you know? Right. Yeah. And um, that was cool, and he needed all this sand shoveled, not for graves or whatever, but in his, in his uh-huh. property. And so we would shovel sand for him in exchange for a dollar an hour and an hour on his Apple computer. Playing Ultima One. Wow. Yeah. And so like that was my first experience with that. And he would stand there holding his Uzi, pointing it out the window and stuff. He was like this eccentric guy, uh-huh. you know, in the 80s. Um, but anyway, so I, I knew like I didn't know Origin as a company, but I had played, um, I had really loved Underworld and 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 I really loved Ultima Seven um and a lot of other stuff at the time too. But in QA one day I looked over somebody's shoulder and this dude was playing a game that looked like underworld, Mm -hmm. but it was like more colorful. And I was like, what's that? You know, immediately my radar went off and he was like, Oh, this is by the guys in Boston who did underworld. And I was like, I thought this company did underworld. They were like, no, we published it. They developed it. So like the beginning, like this is the thing is like working in QA for a year or three years, or I I only worked it for like a year, I think, but like a year and a half or something. But like, um, yeah, it's probably a year and a half. But, like, working in QA for a while, you work with the translators. Sometimes you literally work with the legal department. You work with, like, everybody. The programmers, obviously, you know. And you you learn so much about the industry. Like, I, that's why I still think in some places QA is poorly treated. And that, you know, sure. we, we should fix that, of course. Um, but, like, QA also has its own unique uh, problems. Because sometimes you need a lot of people and you need them fast. And... Um, you know the um, yeah and it's it's a demanding job they do great work and they're what they're the front line right you know so for the for the players um but anyway i i, I saw this game um and i was like holy cow what is that you know i think at the time i want to say i think it was called citadel or something maybe i'm wrong right. maybe, maybe it was originally i don't think it was originally system shock but it was System Shock, ultimately. And so I went to Kay's office and I said, who do I have to kill to get on this project? <laughs> and let me explain to you why. I would right. read Neil Stevenson and Bruce Sterling and William Gibson. Yep. And I'm not a big reader these days, but at the time I, I read a lot of stuff. Yeah. And so she was like, well, we need somebody for the project, you know, and you've sold me. And so, because I understood the type of game it was from knowing Underworld back and forth. I understood the... the the thematics of cyberpunk fiction Um, and um, I started working on it and we did the floppy and that was cool it was fine it was magical it was like my favorite game experience ever already you know and I just spent hours playing it over and over and over and talking to the team and writing bugs and then we started doing the CD there was this unique moment in games history where Somebody would do the CD version and suddenly you add voice to all the characters and it was like a huge upgrade. Now we take it for granted, of course, but man. Um, And so the whole project for me was 10 months just supporting the brilliant development team in Boston. And Doug Church came and sat in my cubicle for like the last part of it. He would either be in Warren's office or my cubicle, just like watching what we were doing. And I think he was there because him and a guy named James were supporting two headsets, VR headsets. This was like 1994. Right. And there was the CyberMax and the VFX1. Uh, <laughs> the CyberMax was like a brick with a dial on the back of a band on the back of your head, and you'd hang the brick in front of your face and you'd tighten the dial on the back of your head. It hurt to wear. Huh. And we had this heavy prototype, and I remember playing one day, and one of my testers was <laughs> sitting there wearing it, and he was like, I think I had him, I was cruel in this moment. I had him using this what was the the mouse called that was stood on a stem? It cramped your hand so bad. But right. it, was, it was like this thing that you put your hand on and you angled it. So he was using that, but it had this extra axis of freedom, right? He was using that and he was wearing the CyberMax. <clears throat> and I smelled something burning. It was this 10K prototype that we had been threatened with an inch of our lives to not damage. And I think a diode or something had, was burning was smoking it it wasn't serious but I smelled burning plastic and I looked over and there was a stream of smoke this guy couldn't see he's doing the like you know VR head moving around you know like he's physically in the space the sense of presence and I was like John it's on fire and he literally threw it across the room (laughs) and it made this sickening like crunch sound you know um but anyway Doug was there for the, the, what was the other one called? The Forte, the VFX1 Forte or something. Right. It looked like a bicycle helmet. And it was so crude. <laughs> I don't remember the resolution of each eye, but it had to be something by like like 200 by 400, or I don't even right. know, maybe less than that, right? Like an Apple II resolution. And so it I updated know. so slowly. Yeah. And But it was cool when it worked. You know, like when you, you're standing there in Citadel Station on the edge of some like mini ravine looking across the way at like a cyborg warrior guy and you like turn your head and look and uh in my memory it was like slow and choppy but like cool to have that sense of presence already and that game had the like roller skates you could turn on and it was all crazy physically uh and so anyway uh i worked on that game for 10 months with them and it was almost all one way i don't think i did much for them but they did tremendous for me i learned so much uh, I did do things like uncredited, help write the clue book and stuff because I felt like I was so into the game, right. and I was so knowledgeable about it and stuff that I, you know, needed to be done right. Um, but I play tested the shit out of it and wrote a ton of bugs and and then they brought me up to Boston to interview with them. Um, and I almost accepted that job, but at origin, uh, by that point, I was pitching my own projects and believe it or not, I, I pitched. As a, as a tester? No, at that point I had moved into, at that point I would moved into like a hybrid production role. Sure, okay. And so I was they, an associate producer. They
1: saw you had you had value.
0: Yeah, in, and it, so it. I uh, I pitched a project to War Inspector, okay. like a Command & Conquer style RTS. And Command and & Conquer I don't think was out yet. I think based on Dune, Dune 2, 2 was out? I was like sure. a huge fan of Dune 2. And so I picked, pitched this game called Technosaur that people were excited about, and we we developed it for a year and then it got killed by Don Matrick and, you know, the rest is history. But um, but All I de- right. I decided to stay and do that instead of go work with them on Terra Nova. Okay. And, but then after that I left and went to work with some of them. They spun off into a group called Multitude and we worked on Fireteam. Team, it was one of the first games with Voice. I got to work with some brilliant people there, Rob Fermier and Art Men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then I think after that I went back with Warren on Deus Ex. But, you know, so it was just like moving around and trying to find... My rhythm, and it wasn't until Deus Ex that I got back to something that was akin to Underworld, which was my favorite thing, and um, and System Shock, you know, and then right. we were making something in that space, sort of, right? Uh, and that that's when it felt great. And every time in the industry that I've kind of deviated from that, it hasn't felt as good to me, right? Um, you know, getting back to it very strongly with Dishonored one and two was was great. Right. Did uh, you? Red- I mean, were you aware? I mean,
1: I'm trying to remember when System Shock Two was being made, but like, were you aware of it and like mm-hmm. trying to join that team or? That no,
0: different? I think I think um, by that point we were working on Deus Ex, okay. and I'm pretty sure that right before Deus Ex came out, I mean, I'm somebody be- can check and verify that this is bullshit or not, but like, I'm pretty sure that while we were working on Deus Ex, Half Life One, System Shock Two, and Thief. Yeah. came out sure, and maybe Thief One, Thief Two, maybe it was Thief Two actually. Okay, and those were such good influences on Deus Ex because sure. everything that we could look at from those games that was strong that we could you know add to our game we we did basically even though you know we were going in a different direction in some ways, um, but you know how it is a game comes out and you look at it and you're like oh god this is so good I, you know I what if what if we did this our game more like that you know so.
1: Okay, so you 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 know you started with ASX, and um, that would be a great game to talk about, right? So yeah, yeah let's talk about like how that game started and right. or where, you know what design points started from and how it deviated over time.
0: I mean, I think as a developer, the first thing I shipped was Fireteam, but and Fireteam was weird because I moved to Silicon Valley, so I lived in oh, okay. Pacifica, uh-huh. and I worked in San Mateo, and I had that whole experience, and it was again just epiphany after epiphany for a kid like me, right? Um, the same as when I moved to Germany and was part of the the writing group there, which was a bunch of expat liberal arts professors who just changed my life. Right. Moving to the Bay Area was just like enormously expanding, um, and there were like six people on that team, and right. like at least two of them were MIT grads. Right. So yeah. like, it was just like drinking from a, a fire hose all the time. And I think, like, we shipped with four game modes, and I worked with those guys on the mechanics for the four game modes, which was like shipping mini-board games, in a way. Um, And there were three character classes that we tuned separately. And it was down to the point where, like, the artist lived somewhere else, and he would send us a bunch of animations of some character, right, uh, that he had shot in, I don't know, 3D Max or whatever he worked in. And we would just get them and then the, the game was too slow and somebody was just like, can you just look through the animations and see which ones we can drop? And so I'd look through like, here's the running animation. And I'd look through all the frames and I would try to drop every third one or every fourth one or whatever. And nobody could notice really like, oh, it's, it doesn't flicker too bad, it, the guy runs and now you've used you know, one third less art or whatever. Uh, the artist didn't like that, but like, that was the, the job was literally like that, it was like, hey, we don't have a death cry for this character, can you go find a clip on the internet and take it when it sounds like this woman is yelling and turn it into a death cry or whatever. So we were doing the game mechanics, I was building all the maps, it was my first level design job. Uh, And sports game maps are different, right? Because it's like, you know, big fields are a problem. You know, you go to a high school football game or a middle school and the scores are like huge, because there's like two good people in the whole field. Right. And the holes in the line are gigantic. But by the time you get to adults, you know, they fill up more of the field, everyone's good, and there's no holes, so the games are like way tighter, you know. if And so when you're working on like a sports-like experience, like, you know, I'm sure that the teams that worked on Doom and things like that, or Quake figured this out as well, like choke points and bottlenecks and places where people have to cross each other's paths are or, or really interesting. And so our team had a lot of that kind of design, a very small space, run back and forth with each other and try to score points on each other, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so all those game mechanics, and, and we, unfortunately the company was not very Open to like narrative thinking, so the game was really generic, actually, right. and it, I didn't had it didn't have any identity from my perspective, but the mechanics were pretty fun, and you and when voice worked, it was really cool. Like, uh, we we had a little headset we shipped with, mm-hmm. it immediately posed a bunch of problems because you could tell which players were older or younger or male or female, like you know all the problems people try to solve today, um, but in any case. Uh, when that game got near beta, I left and went back to Texas and worked with. I had pitched. I'd heard what Warren was working on or wanted to work on, and I pitched him a mission through email. Yep. And he loved it and brought me back to interview with the team and stuff. And that's how I ended up as a um, lead designer of Deus Ex. Like, oh. wait, what? What mission did you pitch? Like, like, how did
1: you how did you understand the game at that point?
0: Like Warren talked a, about a lot of things because he's like a very maximalist guy sometimes. And he's a former film major guy, so he he's very cinematic in that sense, and he's very narrative driven. And he would talk about spy fiction, genre spy fiction, and things like that. And that excited me because I like that stuff. Um, But he also talked about conspiracy theory and the X Files, and it's just funny how wacky and goofy conspiracy theory seemed at the time as a as a tongue-in-cheek thing to play with around. Sure. Deus Ex, and now mm-hmm. it's so deadly serious. When you think about <laughs> Pizzagate and things yeah, like that, it's sure. just like horrifying, like right? How it's like, actually changed the it's world. It's contextually very different now, right? Yeah. Um, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I, I talked about like a, a crime figure going to a hotel room um, and you needing to record him saying something and so you went into you you could move around inside the motel complex there's a pool out in the middle a diving board and things like that and then you know sets of apartments with balconies overlooking the pool and looking at each other and so the thought was you could take you could do different ways but you could get in the apartment across the way from the pool and set up a laser mic to record or hop balcony to balcony to get on the balcony to listen to what was going on in the room where this guy was at Um, where he was torturing someone, extracting information, or doing something bad. I don't even remember, it was very high level like that. Um, But Warren was like, oh this guy gets our game, this is what we need, not shooters or not Ultima or whatever, this is the kind of thinking that we need. And so uh, I moved back and worked with those guys for I don't know, three and a half years or whatever it was, we shipped Deus Ex three years probably. That was amazing because it was a, a brilliant programmer Assistant director named Chris Norton, Warren, and then I think 20 people or 25 people. Couldn't have been more than 30. Right. We literally had three programmers and we shipped Deus Ex. And yeah. I just think about like how tight that team was. And we fought like cats and dogs, right. but like everything was just an economy of people, you know?
1: From your perspective, what did you want to accomplish with the game? Like, yeah. what, what was your goals and how did you, you know? How did you make that happen and what worked and what didn't?
0: There are brainy ways to motivate a team and then there are dumb ways to motivate a team. And and sometimes the dumb ones are good too, right? And so we could talk a lot in terms of we we wrote, uh, I think Warren collated it or collected it and started it probably, but we all contributed to it. This this sort of like set of rules for Deus Ex, you know, that, that um, like I didn't want there to be a stealth path or a combat path. I wanted those things to all be available all the time, right? Um, and so we we wanted to reward for accomplishing the goal, not how you did it. Like some people wanted to put like, if you go pick the lock, you get an experience point bonus for blah, blah, blah. And I was like... What if you just, by getting in the room with the person that you're supposed to talk right. to, that we reward you there? Because what if you made it on the roof and went through the skylight? Yeah, We don't want to reward you for going the skylight path. We want to reward you for getting there. And it opens the door to however you got there, yeah. even if it's a bug, you know? Um, so there were, you know, you can talk all, you can make all that very academic and very jargony, and you can talk about agency and immersion, and you can talk about plausibility. Like, if I expect there to be a note wadded up in the in the boss's trash can that has some revealing information and it maybe it should be there right meet expectations right you can you can you can do all that practically or academically philosophically but and i and we did all of that by the way we were (laughs) very we were very into that as well but also at some point i was just like this needs to be underworld with guns uh and there were other people there were other factions on the team that were like no this is kind of like an ultima but first person and it, it sounds brain dead now, or like that's the wrong way to put it, I guess it, it sounds hard to believe now, but like there were some of us that were wanted like, okay, look, if you want to put a bomb in someone's car engine, here's how we would do it in this game. You would avoid notice, you would get to the car, uh, you'd probably click on the hood, which would be highlighted, the hood would open, there's probably a slot in there, you would click on the slot, and the bomb, if it's in your inventory, would appear there. And then you click on the hood to close it. Now, this is theoretical because that doesn't exist exactly in Deus Ex. But, like, if you left the hood open and a guard walked by, he'd be like, hey, what's that? Oh, my God, a bomb. You know, if you didn't, if you, if you got spotted, somebody would be like, who are you? Um, but there were literally people that wanted one interaction to be like, to open the door, you do this interaction. Yeah. To do that with the car, you'll need the tools. Yeah. And you'll have to, like unscrew this and it will be these keys or whatever and it's like man no right. it's like here's the interact key and you use the interact key to open the door or open the trunk or attach the bomb or turn on the faucet or whatever and that was a fight at the time right like it was a fight at the time to have consistency across the levels all that we had eight level designers initially or something right. like that seven i think and and it we won in the end by saying everybody Here's how a door works, or here's how bedroom furniture works, or here's how uh, these guards behave, or the timing of their patrol routes. So we don't want it to be inconsistent from level to level. Uh, that doesn't make the game better; it makes the game worse. Right. And those were fights we had to actually have. And I don't think it was because anyone was dumb or whatever. I think it was just because things were being worked out right. that had not been worked out yet. You know,
1: where where do you want your game's complexity to be? Right. And yeah. You, you know, you wanted a, the complexity to be in the planning level like that's what matters not the actual execution
2: I mean all of this is part of the process right it needs to happen it drives the design better you know you have to push for your idea convince them that this is the winning one
0: yeah it's part of the process on every project like you're saying but then it's also there's an arc across the industry as standards are adopted Mm -hmm. um yeah what was it yesterday on the level design panel um Oh, I'll get. I'll get back to that. But like, there, there were moments where, um, yeah. Let me think for a second. We
2: have to deal with that sometimes. Like somebody tells us this is a great idea, and we have to kind of push back on the feasible versus like the the wonderful. Yeah, and like the wonderful idea. Is it feasible? <laughs> is it going to drive the gameplay to a better place? Mm-hmm. That's a whole different yeah. story.
1: It was really subtle, but between Civ three and Civ four, we picked up a whole lot of conventions from rts's and other strategy games just because we were like why are we on this island doing things our own our own bizarre way right like the less you can get the less there's a stumbling block between the player and how they play the game the better
2: even on a much simpler uh simpler kind of scale we make historical strategy games people come to us and it's like this is historically this is how happened this is how it should happen in your story and i'm like but we're not a history simulator you know where do we put the depth yeah how do you do the gameplay if we were to just tell you the story historical accuracy being the main focus.
0: And if my intention is to drop a caravan here and plot a route and I can do something similar in any other games like or even in Google Maps from a biking path or whatever and you can leverage that. Then it makes it intuitive. Intuitive doesn't mean it's naturally intuitive. It just means it's familiar to you. And like, if I if there's a dominant leader in the industry that does even a bad game, but everybody plays it and they know exactly, touch this point, a dotted line. It's now sticky to that point. Touch that point and do that. Don't don't like have your own way of doing that unless it's demonstrably better, right? So I think those kinds of changes you're talking about are, are welcomed. But like on at the time in games, it was like. A lot of shooters would ship, and the doors are like Star Trek doors, right? You come up close to them, and they just get out of your way. They just yep. move sideways into the wall. That's brilliant. That's a good solution. Um, even better is a force field that turns off when you get close to it. Because guess what? No problems. But like, as soon as you go with, like, this is a CD version of New York, and this is a crappy apartment, um, and it's not Blade Runner or whatever, then, like, the door swings away from you. But what if there's an NPC next to it? What if you left an object there? And then you go through it, does it swing away from you again? So eventually games have settled on like, maybe the door swings away from you always, even though that doesn't make sense right. from a hinge standpoint. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it passes through things, maybe it stops and comes back to position. You know, like the door problem is like, you know, there's a ah, nightmare. Yeah. Um, but like level design, the point being level designers were doing it inconsistently, sure. even in one game. And so it was a struggle to get everybody to accept that the smart part of the game is the intention, and and then collecting the information, and then acting should be very simple, and then seeing the results get fed back to you of what happened, the outcome, that's the cool part. Not, my God, how do I click on this door? Because it's different than the last door, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one, thing, one of the things distinctive about Deus Ex is, you know, all
1: the different you know, very different ways through the game to reach yeah. the levels. Like how much How much was that part of your process? Like was it um, was this just very straightforward of like we're going to plan these three different paths or was it like you kind of built up the level from the bottom and it just kind of, you know, what yeah. happens, happens.
0: So I remember what I was going to say earlier. There was a moment on the level design immersive sim uh, panel yesterday where one of the questions we asked them was, Look, these are called immersive sims, and people like to talk about the systems and the simulation. But some of our finest moments have been bespoke, personally curated, quirky little non-systemic things. Yeah. Like in Dishonored, the example we gave yesterday was, you can, you're supposed to go kill the high overseer. Yeah. He's the religious leader. When you get there near him, he is in a meeting with this guard captain. And you also have a side mission to keep the guard captain alive. If you want to do that, you don't have to. He, They come together out of the room that they were meeting in, which you cannot get into. Yep. And Campbell, the overseer, is going to pour some wine for right. them both. And there's a little Lazy Susan turntable. Right. Uh, not turntable, but a little table with the drinks on it. You can decide to move it and poison Campbell instead. So the guy who's trying to do the poisoning dies. Or you can let it go and he'll poison the guard captain and then insult him and walk away if he doesn't see you or you can poison them both or you can remove the poison from and then now the game has to handle need nobody got poisoned and campbell's like what happened are you okay are you sure you're not sick you know and you can be hiding under the table and all of those permutations can happen and we had to record voice for them and handle scripting for them and um and if they ever see you, they they lock down the building, and the guards try to kill the guard captain anyway, but he's trying to fight his way out. And so all these outcomes can happen. And this one level designer, Rich Wilson, worked on that level. And uh, really smart guy, lovely guy. And we, the number of problems we had with that, like I think originally his ideas were a lot more out there, and we narrowed it all down. Maybe Christophe Carrier or somebody, the level design director at Arcane and Leon, maybe somebody just maybe it was Ricardo Bear, but somebody suggested, what if we had this device that was just like, it just rotates where the poison cup is and it can be in neither one of them, the other, or both. And then we handle those outcomes. And that is a completely like scripted, bespoke branching moment there. Um, And yet it provides some of the most satisfying uh, gameplay. The systems are cool. Like if I break a window and the guard hears me, that sound propagation, that's awesome. Um, if I hide and a timer passes, he gives up, he didn't see me, he leaves, that's systems, that's great. Um, but that little poison thing, the game would be flat without that. You know, right. It would be flat without the, the bespoke scripted part. And so, you know, again, back to the things that we articulated, I think one of the things on our list for Deus Ex was multiple solutions to problems. Right. And the team even argued about what that meant, you know, like, does it mean there's a stealth hallway and a combat hallway or whatever? I didn't agree with that. And so we all worked on different levels. And I I don't want to pat myself too hard on the back here because I wasn't the most technical level designer. I wasn't the most aesthetic, architecturally speaking. Um, I wasn't the most reasonable to work with. Uh, but, I, but I was really clean on the grid, like everything was very clean, and I was fast. And... Um, and so we had a guy on the team that was way more technical than me. And we had a guy that had did beautiful visual lighting and stuff like that. Um, but I worked on, I, I don't remember the percentage, but it was a very high percentage. Because I did all my levels. I took over a couple of other people's levels when they left the company. I ended up doing a lot of stuff that I, originally I was just going to do France and some other stuff. But I took over New York at some point. And I looked up like the Harlem renaissance project, and I used a lot of that architecture, Mm -hmm, it was really cool, early internet stuff. Um, And I had literally, I've still never been to Liberty Island, but my job was to build Liberty Island, which was the opening to Deus Ex. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I realized at the time what a challenge it was, or what an opportunity it was, but I went crazy on that. And I, I made it basically its own little mini game, where you get to work the first day, there's a crisis happening, your brother on the dock tells you, here's, go solve the problem. And he very explicitly gives you like, I can give you a sniper yeah, like three rifle. Options, right, I can give like you that. an explosive or I can give you a sleep dart or something yep. like that, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's it's three things like that. And and he actually tells you, like, uh, you know, remember these are one 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 character is literally saying, Remember, these are people. And the other one's like, These are fucking terrorists. Kill them. What are you talking about? Right. And so yeah. we we immediately confront you with, you know. And part of this is Warren, and part of it's the brilliance of Sheldon Pocote's writing. And it, it's a bunch of people working together. Chris Norton was a brilliant influence on this project. But, but I laid out the levels so it looked like Liberty Island, basically, and UNACO headquarters was over there. And the satellite communications van that I worked in in Germany was over there. And then there was like an extra bunker on the east side of the island. And, of course, the whole statue thing with all the cameras and trip lasers and all that stuff. Um, and my goal was to just let you wander it. And pick which way you wanted to go, and not put too much pressure on you. So, like, you could go get into the fighting immediately and go after the target if you wanted to be very direct, or you could wander and explore. I literally took a, a barge that someone had made from somewhere else in the world. They made a. Uh, the artists were giving us objects all the time, but they weren't very good because they were beautiful, but they had no collision. They were like a. Mm-hmm. They were like a sphere or a cube or something, right? A cylinder, I think. So, like, I ended up making all this bedroom furniture that everybody cannibalized for the game because then you could jump on the bed or put a mirror you know you can actually have a mirror surface on the the dresser whereas if it was a a dresser that an artist had made as a as a a static mesh or whatever it looked pretty but it didn't function the same way right so in that same way we made barges and things like that out of bsp so i took somebody else's forklift i took Monty martinez's forklift and i used that in my level i took um, somebody's barge and i sank it off the north dock mm-hmm. for no reason. And I put some resources in a, in a hatch and I timed swimming from the surface, holding your breath to get to the hatch so that you probably couldn't do it unless you had the swimming skill or the augmentation that l- allowed you to breathe water, right? Uh, and if you use an explosive or a lockpick and you swam down there and you had those things, you could get some good resources out of that. To this day, I meet people that are like, I didn't know there was a barge there, right? But So there's no point to it, right? It's elective content. It was open-world exploration content, kind of. But it was also it also served another purpose. Like, economically speaking, it is a reward, but it also is a reward that is accessible to you if you play a certain way or you build a character in a certain way, rather. And we were always looking for for ways to reward the people that had done like, I'm the swimming guy. And there were weapon mods that would let your weapons work underwater. So you can imagine taking these, in RPG design, you can take, if you just give everybody one column and it's like, pick your powers, that's that's okay. But if you give them three mm-hmm. and you pick your, column, your powers from these three categories, and sometimes you can curate them in a certain way that makes you feel a certain way. Like, hey, I'm going to take all the ones that feel shadowy or sneaky or whatever i'm going to take all the ones that seem diplomatic in some way right um my background is i'm a former courtier or uh i'm a, I'm a, a renaissance painter and then my skill is diplomacy and negotiation uh, you know and my magic item is related to looking good during meetings or whatever i don't know that's an example right like of a player making very like stylized decisions from three different buckets. And so we thought a lot about that on Deus Ex. We were just like, well as level designers, how do we reward the person who's all about computer hacking? They saw the matrix, they like you know, hacking, they like looking through cameras and spying at people, they like turning the alliance of the turret so it mows down their enemies. They're a controller, they feel powerful even if they're weak personally. Uh, and let's support that path through. You know? And so we spent a lot of time talking about sort of implicit pathways. And how you could reward those as a level designer, um, and uh, like and so I
2: sabotaging? what's that like through like a sabotaging? Totally, kind of, yeah. yeah.
0: Like I'm gonna go there and plant a mine, so the next time the guard walks by, it's gonna blow up. And where I put it, it also is gonna blow up that steel door because, you know, or that that heavy door. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a fantasy to that, right? There's yeah, a, there's a
2: the fact that you're hidden and no one knows who you are. Totally,
0: yeah. yeah. And then there's also the brainy computer hacker guy that I'm, I'm gonna win by information, you know? Um, we would throw in occasionally like, well, I can't think of anything else to do here. Well, let's just write a conversation where that guard is corrupt, and if you give him 100 credits, he'll, he'll give you the key. And it was like, uh, okay, that's cool. Um, and the point here is Liberty Island became kind of a blueprint, I think, for the whole game, in a way, right? Because you confront it as a player, and you realize you have these options, and then eventually, intuitively, you intuit out that these options map to decisions you make in building your character or your ethical style or your gameplay approach. Whether you want to be sneaky or guns blazing, because let's not forget, plenty, plenty of people wanted to armor up, get explosives, and just go in and fight the robots, right? Right. There's nothing wrong with that either.
1: I was always curious for these games, actually, how percentages kind of break down. I mean, I i don't imagine you had very good metrics back in the day we, but like, we have
0: terrible metrics today you know, <laughs> what are you talking about what people do things like look at the achievements that you get and yeah like sure. how many you know, how many 30. people played dishonored without killing anyone right you know, yeah but
1: um, I, I guess i kind of always assumed if someone wanted to play it like doom they play doom I totally could not, Yeah. not deus x but right. i don't know if that's true or
0: not well i'll answer that briefly and then i want to get back to that question from the panel um On Dishonored 1, we had just hired out of college this brilliant young guy, Dinga Bakaba, who went on to work with me on Dishonored 2 when I moved to France and was then the game director with Sebastian Maton over Deathloop um, and is now the studio director there. He's like such a success story. But one of the things about Dinga is that while Raph and I cared about the narrative and stealth and all that in in Dishonored, um, we also cared about the sword combat and all that. But Dinga said, I love all that too, but I want to make sure. Uh, and we might have assigned him to this too. I don't, I don't remember. Dinga makes sure it feels good. Or, you know, he was like, I want to make sure this feels good <coughs> if I'm dumb and I don't sneak, and I don't care about the story, but I just want to approach this with guns and grenades and just murdering my way through the game and shooting people down. And I want that to be fun. I want it to physically feel fun, to slide, stab, shoot, bomb, etc. Um, and of course, he loves all the other components as well—the stealth and the narrative and everything as well. Uh, but, but like that felt good on Dishonored One because we knew that there were just a certain percentage of players that didn't want to care about eavesdropping or pe- uh, keyhole peeping or you know any of that kind of kind of stuff. Like, um, but anyway, back to that point from the from the panel yesterday, we posed that question: like, how much of this game's you know, goodness is uh, from the systemic consistency of rules and how you can plan, formulate, and all that stuff. And how much of it is from these quirky little ideas that a dungeon master would have. Sure. Like you're going to sneak into the Vatican to observe the Pope talking to uh, this famous police commissioner, uh, and word on the street is, he's going to poison the police commissioner that's essentially the setup from the mission that i was talking about in dishonored uh and you get there and there's like a weird lazy susan that you might expect in the vatican for pouring wine for a bunch of priests at a table and you saw that before the doors opened somebody came in with some poison um like you know that's not systemic at all that's like you know that's and those games it's so funny because i said yesterday like uh, tell me I'm gonna like your game without telling me I'm gonna like your game, and that is if your level design department is strong. I'm probably gonna like your game, and that's because um, level designers are not just there to like make pathways and bottlenecks and choke points and put narratives, brilliant writing into the game. They're also there to say, what if at this point these two people are in a locked room and you can't you can hear them but you can't get to them but you can infer that there's about to be a poisoning out here and you can alter who gets poisoned. You know, that is like not quite architecture or environmental art or narrative. It's some dungeon mastering in the middle, right? Right. Um,
1: It's interesting because the, you know, the open world simulation stuff, you know, like everything follows certain rules and stuff comes out of it, um, which feels like much more like kind of like the thief was the one I felt like that really like pushed that as far as you could. Um, And the kind of like the bespoke stuff. You know, the, the poison cups are never, they're very, they're really different. Like they don't necessarily meld together. So,
0: yeah, but occasionally when people get too philosophical about one or the other, I lose interest. You know, it's like I don't want to play adventure games personally. Right. But I also, a pure simulation, like it's just not that interesting to me. You know, it's like there's something about that middle space uh, where I'm in a simulation mm-hmm. and I can plan, and formulate, and all that, and everything's consistent. But periodically, I got I get some little thing like that.
1: Well, uh, a lot of times, it, it feels like the games that succeed exist in this middle space where you can't ex- exactly explain why philosophically it all hangs together. Yeah. Like if you have some grand theory of yeah. like how games are supposed to work, it ends right. up being too extreme in one way or another.
0: It, totally, in the same way that like you know a word, and I can use the word, and you and we agree on the definition of it. But what if we ever stop semantically and start digging into where the exceptions are and how do you know it means this and does it mean that to another person the word falls apart but we can still use it you know Um, one thing I was going to say is like on Deus Ex one of the things that made it work and I think all those games Dishonored and all, all those kinds of games is that the sort of lead the level designer over an area works very closely with environmental artists and architecture or architects and they together form a little cabal that direct or curate that experience, right? And it's often led by one or the other of them. Often the level designer will be like the sort of mini scene director, the dungeon master whatever, and everybody's supporting that effort. Um, But different people have different tastes and different quirks Mm -hmm. and uh, different things that fascinate them. Like there was a scene in Deus Ex where Monty Martinez wanted these huge bots in these garages and uh, at some point, you can release them, and they fight, and you can you can turn their alliance, you know, and, and that was that was the thing that, and it was probably ill-advised because they were too big to use the the, the pathfinding solution, and they bu- they they bumped into each other and rotated in weird ways, and but it was his idea, and he was he was in love with it, um, a very simple little level design thing I always talk about that I. Some of my happiest days were as a level designer. I have more problems now, you know, as a studio director, and more problems as a creative director and all that, But and less hands on tools. Like, I work with people who still open the editor every day and do things in it, and I envy them. Um, but there was a moment in Deus Ex where I wanted JC Denton had been knocked out and all of his stuff taken away. We were gonna put you in prison, you could break out, get your stuff back, um, reset you. And I wanted to have Anna Navarre walk over to the cell that he was in and talk to him, cat and mouse, like she's in control. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think she's a, like a former Israeli spy or something and she's, she's tough and she's badass and she's a little evil. And, um, but I also was very influenced by Blade Runner and The Matrix and all that, so I put him in the cell and I put a, a glass pane in front of the cell that was mirrored, so you're looking at yourself. You can't do this today because if I hop up on the toilet you can see that I'm not like standing the way I would be if I hopped up on a toilet. I'm, you know, I literally am standing in place or I'm crouched in some weird way and my collision cylinder is barely hanging on the toilet. It doesn't make any sense visually. But like back then we didn't care. So there's a cell, the bed and a toilet and brick walls and a mirrored window. And you could hear her footsteps and there's a button on the wall outside. And if you push the button, you hear a a little humming sound and the glass goes transparent and she's standing there and she talks to you. And when she's done with your conversation, she cuts you off and she just pushes the button and it, it goes mirrored again and she walks away. And that, that's a scene that I wanted to do, right? And so, like, I literally took a 2D sheet, put it in the, in the world, uh, put a solid mover or a solid piece of geometry behind it that was transparent so you couldn't get out. Um, And then I also had a 2D sheet that was slightly translucent, you could see through. And with a speed of zero on the push of the button, I moved the mirrored one out into the void and moved the other one back uh, so that you could see through it. And it it feels like the glass fades from mirrored to transparent or whatever, translucent. It's the simplest, dumbest thing in the world. But as a level designer, I remember being so proud of the moment not because of the technology an engineer would laugh at that right you probably did it wrong I could probably break it and get out of the room or whatever um, but like because narratively speaking it is part of the spy fantasy she is playing cow and mouse with you she when she wants to talk to you she clears the window when she doesn't want to she opakes the window and, and it's very cyberpunk and it's very you know dystopian in a way um, and it's just the simplest little thing, you know. And everybody, I think, in level design has something like that. For Rich Wilson, it might be the poisoning scene, <coughs> um, you know. For for uh, on Dishonored Two, we did accurate elevators, and people went crazy. Level designers went crazy with the elevators that we did in that game. And you can do all kinds of things with them. You can break the cables and drop guards to their doom. Um, you can wait for the elevator to go by and jack the window open or the door and drop down under the elevator into a basement of a a floor that it used to go down to. We just went crazy with that. And I think a lot of times people will have a particular taste about a thing they want to do in the world and then the team brings its collective might to make that happen and then the player is exploring that and I think players need that. If they want to play a systemic game, they'll go play a racing game or something. You know, those are great. But like, if they want to do you know, to move their way through the world and eventually have this adventure game layer, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll play a game like ours or something.
2: What type <coughs> of research goes into, into your game? Like, you know, you have to research weapons and elevators. And-
0: yeah. Yeah, like it's funny, but some games require a lot and some games I guess don't require that much. But research always makes your game better, in my opinion. For Dishonored, we went through all this research on to London in the 1800s and and earlier, we looked at like, um, you know, like cause of death in London in the year 1600, 1700, 1800. And like, you know, so there was an entry, a handwritten entry on this page. It was like teeth. I was like, what the fuck <laughs> does that mean? 6,000 people died in London of teeth? It just meant infection. And okay. Imagine yeah. having infected teeth and just dying from it. Yeah. It's horrific, you know, horrific. Um and somebody wrote in a diary somewhere that, like, across London during the summer, periodically you could hear crashes, because um, when a f- there were no building codes, and uh-huh. so when a family had eight kids and they the mom had a ninth one or whatever, the dad and the oldest kid would go out to the to the extreme room in the apartment. They would climb out on the ledge and they would start building another room. Jeez and propping it, you know, and so once in a while those would just collapse. And um, <clears throat> that's why we have building codes today, because of things like that,
2: right? Um, How much is necessary for the players who play these types of games to have consistency in in the sense of, like, when you come to a shooter game, some things shouldn't be changed. You know, like when you have an open window, like you have, a, when you have the X that is always At the top, right? Yeah. You don't move it to the middle. It just confuses (laughs) the heck out of people. The
0: consistency. Yeah. So how much of that people
2: who create these games keep in their game because it helps the player and if that exists. Yeah. Because I'm not, I don't play these types of games. So I just like keep wondering if you want the player to have fun, you don't change these like basic things on them, right?
0: Let's let's talk about that. I wanna I wanna answer that. But like I just wanna say on the subject of the research. There was a term we stumbled on when we were researching Dishonored called mudlark. And I was like, what's a mudlark? Uh And, you know, there were orphans that were too small to be in a gang. Okay. You know, we're talking about three or four, you know. And they would run around in packs with some slightly older kids. Um, And in order to not starve, they would do things like go to where the sewage system dumped out into the river. And there would be like a mud silt, you know, like where shit is yeah. just like mud and all that just rolling yeah. out and they would walk around barefoot digging through it and they would find sometimes an old hair comb that broke in half or a ring or a coin or anything valuable and then they would take it and sell it and then, of course because they were walking around in that stuff they would get sick they would cut their feet they would die and they were, the people of the city referred to them as mudlarks. and so we use that term in dishonor because it was all about plague and sadness yeah. and death and uh, corruption uh, and the city falling apart yeah. And it may not be meaningful to anybody, and maybe nobody else ever saw it in the notes. We probably used it three times or whatever in conversations and notes. But it was very meaningful to me, and it was like I, I felt the weight of that word and how sad that word was yeah, um, and how beautiful the word is at the same time.
1: Yeah, That's and so, an amazing detail. I mean, like being able to really dig into what things were like back then that people just forgotten about. It's like being able to visit an alien planet, right? Right.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, when I moved to Europe and lived in Lyon, there were – such amazing things about Lyon, you know the the food the architecture and all that but like definitely moments of like getting on the metro and forgetting what you know human body odor smells like (laughs) like I shower you know at least once a day and most people in modern the corporate world do and you know and also where capitalism has us isolated we like get in our cars and like ride from our homes to our jobs and we're used to. Um, And and then further, wealth inequality means that we live in these layers, right? You know, like you, I only interact with people who use deodorant or whatever. And you know, you forget that there's just all these different layers. When I was growing up, my dad had all these holes burned in his clothes because he was constantly covered in sparks from the welding and the cutting and stuff, you know, with the cutting torch. And so like, you know, moving around in a society that is a little less like uh, stratified somehow, you get little glimpses. And so my point there is, you know, I hope that doesn't sound judgy or whatever, but like my point there is, If you could imagine going to 1850s london as a modern person it would probably be very familiar in some ways and it would probably be mind-blowing in some other other ways ways, like the number of women that died in childbirth would probably be staggering you know to to your sensibilities um so that research i think it's like you said it's an amazing little detail where you find something and you're like oh that's cool you guys make historic games and like i read recently that someone gives credits for Age of Empires, uh, you know, because there's so much historical data. Some mm-hmm. college was giving credits for, for mastery of the game or whatever, nice. you know. And like, I remember civilization changing not just, not just being a great game or whatever, but changing the way I thought about history. Right. You know, like hearing terms like inevitable discovery, like, which totally makes sense. Like, sometimes somebody deserves credit for doing something, for driving it or whatever. Right. Um, you know, even if you think billionaires shouldn't exist, like I, I don't think billionaires should exist. I think we should, you know, have a progressive taxation system that means that, like, you can get rich, but you, a billionaire, is, you can warp the whole system if you're a billionaire, that's terrible. Um, even if you think a particular billionaire is a, is a big villain, uh, which may be the case, uh, sometimes one of them does something that that drives something like, you know, digital payment through the internet, or electric cars, or batteries, or solar panels on roofs, or whatever. And those are good things, and those might be inevitable discoveries. Like they, it, those were already discovered. First of all, they might right. be inevitable developments, but they really there was a massive force resisting those things. So somebody had to drive those things, right? And, but civilization makes you look, it's a game system where the modeling of the game, the mechanics of the game, the dynamics make you think differently about history. Like, oh, this happened because those people had a lot of access to copper. Right. Or they didn't have access to right. copper. They had mud and they right. made everything out of clay or whatever, you yeah. know.
1: Multiple civilizations, they got. They all got to writing, you know. Yeah, and right. And that's going to change them in kind of fairly predictable ways. And
0: Yeah. And so... Anyway, um, games can do so much, you know, and, his, and research can do so much for your game, and, um, and a good game, like, changes the way you think about the world, and, um, yeah. Yeah, the question about standards is, that she was asking is really interesting. Um, you know, you asked the question, um, like, hey, if, if if all the other teams in the world, or even the business software or whatever, um, put the little X in the upper right corner, mm-hmm. why should our shooter put it in the bottom left corner or whatever? It's like, it's so true. We have this thing in Redfall. Uh, Redfall is our open world haunted New England yep. uh, game that is, you know, it's, it's trying to take that open world format. And map arcane's values to it you know so it's all our games should be a venn diagram prey dishonored redfall they're not exactly the same but they if you like one of those you should basically like all of them even though there is variance there's there's open world and some co-op possibility in, in redfall um but we have a developer tool where you launch the game and like i swear there's a place where you click to say what you want to do and and you confirm that, and then you make another choice, and then you click to launch it. And in one case, all the confirm stuff is on the left hand side and the cancel stuff is on the right. But the last one to launch it, it's reversed and it, it <laughs> drives me crazy. And it's uh and it's not worth it's probably not worth bothering someone sure. to fix, but at this cause it's just not even used that often, but yeah, but but it's like it's a great example of like You know, the final game will teach you some things about consistency, um, but nothing like developer tools will teach you, like, so much because, like, you see, you know, like, uh, you know, in the final game, millions of people presumably are going to be using these devices, so you want them to be very, very consistent. But here, like, over the course of three or four years, like, a couple of hundred people are going to be using them, and it's minor frustration, but...
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm only thinking about it because if your game is, you're proud of your game for its gameplay, part of the gameplay should not be because you are making players unlearn things to learn new things. I feel like that's lazy game design.
0: I feel like your UI should be invisible and counterintuitively... What that leads people to want to do is get rid of UI. Right. This is the shooter with no UI. Yeah, no I've heard pod. that so many times. Right. And yeah. we've tried that. Like, mm-hmm. Raph and I literally tried that for Dishonored. And and it's the opposite of what you should do to make your UI invisible. Mm-hmm. If you actually want to make your UI something that the player doesn't think about or see, put it there. Make it pleasant. Make it very clear. Make it stand out. Um, make it work the way other things like this work, the way you were saying, consistently. And very quickly, the player won't even see it. They'll mm-hmm. just be interacting with it, you know? Uh, and they'll be now acting on their intentions. Like, I want to try this thing in the world. Yeah. I'm just doing it. I'm not stopping and going. The second I have to stop and go, now how did I do this thing again? Yeah. Um, and yet I say that and like, you know, people point out a lot how Elden Ring, which I think is like, again, a, a monumental a- accomplishment uh, it's the first From software game that I truly just love. It's yeah. it's it's a game for the next decade, I think. You know, people will be learning from it. But people point out how it violates all these UX yes, guidelines that, yeah. constantly. Yeah. Um. But you know, does it? Because really, what it does is it gives you something you can do all the time. And if you haven't figured out how to do this obscure thing yet, or you don't know what that thing means. Maybe that's just mystery. It just feels like a mystery. And if that was, if that was gating, in order to move to the next room, I have to solve this. It would be incredibly frustrating. Right. But if I can just ignore it and go do something yep. else interesting, yep. and in fact, in the distance, I see something interesting. Uh, well, okay, I'll get to that thing later. It's really only when you hard gate the player on some UI, and it that that I think it, that is really really frustrating. You know?
1: Yeah, I think thing like with UI, I've, I've noticed is that every game I've worked on has. Every game I've worked on has had like multiple major iteration, iterations on the UI. Where you look, you know, you look six months, twelve months, eight, eighteen months ago, and it's like the UI looked totally different. Because the UI is like the last step you really take for your understanding of the game. Like that, when you say like you can't just make the UI disappear, you need the right UI. Well, what's the right UI? You're not going to know until yeah. you finish your game, really. Right. Like it's a, just a continual process of like, okay, what. You know, Because what do we need the player to actually pay attention to? What are the things we thought were important? And what are yeah. the things we discover are important?
0: I talk a lot about that in terms of post-production. Um, like, you don't know your game until you can finish your game. Mm-hmm. And that's when you know what to change about your game. And it's very frustrating <laughs> to funding people conundrum. and producers. It's a conundrum, right? Yeah. Like, I'm going to want to change the game when the game's finished. Why? Because now I'll be able to see the game. I can anticipate some percentage of those. Everybody can. We can look at it as a team and we can assume already we need to change X, Y, and Z. But like until it's finished and you can play it, you won't really know. And you can just ship it like that if you want to make that game, that's fine. We finished Deus Ex and we could have shipped it and we looked at it and Warren and I talked with Chris Norton and other people. And we decided to go back and ask Idos for more time, and they gave us six more months. And we took a finished game, and we just kept noodling on it. We didn't add more shit. We just kept polishing what was there and tuning it for another six months. And it made a huge difference, obviously. Um, But, you know, you say UI, and I agree with you. You know, like if at the very end you could revisit your UI and go, well, how are people, regardless of what we planned, thought people would do, how are people actually engaging yep. with this? What can we go do now? So now let's go revisit the i. The other thing, the UI. The other thing like that though is the first mission for us. Sure. Like you know, you often start with the first mission. Well, this is the first mission. Um, but then it sits and rots for you know oh, like sure. two years, yeah. and then at the very end, you fully understand your game. So what you should really do is go back and redo the first mission because it's the entry to the game. It's that's what we did with Deus Ex. That's, that's why I took over Liberty Island near the end yeah. of the project and mm-hmm. reworked it entirely. And it wasn't perfect. It ran at a low frame rate, et cetera, but like, um, but it but it was a level mm-hmm. made with a full understanding of how the game was ending up, you know, shape taking shape. Um, yeah, for us, that's the tutorial, right? And that's why you know it,
1: every every project, people are always like, you know, isn't it time to start working on the tutorial? And I'm like. You know? Let's
0: put it I, off. I'm sorry, yeah. Like yeah. we just can't.
1: Change? We can't. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. we're gonna have to cram it in at the very end because that's the only time we'll really know what we need to actually deploy. Right.
0: All that work will be wasted if you do it up front. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. There's another thing I was thinking about the other day, which is like the ratio of different people at your company. Mm-hmm. And this is maybe tricky to talk about because it um, uh, it might offend some people or whatever. But like, I realized if our company was you know, 50 people and we were making an immersive sim, let's just say, uh, you know, we, we couldn't probably, but let's at this point, but at some point we did. Um, you know, some number of those people would be gameplay engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, with that many people we couldn't write our own tech, so we'd be using Unreal or something like that, right? Um, some percentage of them would be artists. We might have an out of house sound person or an in house sound person. Some percentage would have to be level designers. And that is what it is. And the level designers would be X percent of the team. Right. And in a meeting, the lead level designer could argue with the art director who could argue with the gameplay lead and, and the game systems lead might be in there. But then let's say they go to the team to 500 people. Yeah. Because it's a big open world AAA, like, you know. You're a Ubisoft now. Yeah. Yeah. You, you need many more of everybody, of course. But you probably need a disproportionately huge number of, like, architects and environmental artists. And so let's say in that model with 500 people, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to embarrass myself saying the wrong numbers here. But, like, let's say you have 20 level designers or whatever. You probably have, like, 150 architects. And so all those groups have... What do
1: you mean by the term architect?
0: It's not actually... um, Like, oh. so it actually
1: builds the geometry? Okay. Yeah, like okay. builds
0: the buildings and the awnings okay. and the sidewalks. And, and then the park benches and stuff would be environmental artists in, in our vernacular. Okay. Um, and so, you know, some people might say missions, scripters, or quest designers on the level design side. And they might say architects or um, I don't know what else you'd call them, world builders or whatever sure. on the other side. But, But, like, suddenly if you have a meeting and you have, like, We'll get the lead level designer of these areas, you'd end up with like three leads or something. But if you got all the art leads, including suddenly the VFX people, the animation people, the environmental artists, the architects, et cetera, the lighting people, you'd have like, you'd have 20 art leads at the meeting. Yep. And so when you have an argument, 20 versus five is not, is not good, good odds, yeah. right? And so the whole thing starts shifting toward the like, point. well, it just makes sense to do what the oh. bulk of the people think, right? Yeah. And so I think that is an Im- invisible way in which companies change and it, and it gets harder. I'm not saying it's better one way or the other. I'm just saying what I know and what I like to do is easier when the level designers are um, empowered. Mm-hmm. You know, um, And our company, I think, understands that. Our architects and our environmental artists work with the level designers very well. But like... We did a, a pretty healthy thing recently where for a long time we had a monolithic structure where there was a lead level designer and a bunch of level designers. But over in Artland, there's a bunch of different subcategories, animation, VFX, environmental art, et cetera. And so we took that level design team and we broke it into three groups, like District 1, District 2, and Open World, and each one has a lead now. So when we have a meeting, there'll be like the lead level designer and those three leads with all the leads of various art groups or gameplay programming groups or whatever. And so suddenly they're on more even footing like before and it helps a lot. Their values, like it's not just about the vista or it's not just about, uh, it's also about how does the mantling code work here? Can I climb up on this rock? Does that rock look like I should be able to climb on it? You know, like um, does this path channel me into an encounter that I have no way out of? Like, You know, it's uh, does it? Can I hear the overheard, or I'm likely to shoot the guy before he even starts a scene? You know, like uh, all of those things that level designers think about. You know. Yep. Yeah. But that ratio on the team, I think, is like. Yeah, it's an
1: interesting way to look at it. Um, Well, we should probably jump back on the timeline a little bit. Um, So, Mm. you know, talked a lot about Deus Ex. Maybe talk about Deus Ex too. Uh,
0: Yeah. So we set out to make. Dishonored 2 after the first one, and the pressure was pretty enormous <clears throat> because when we shipped Deus Ex, I remember standing in Warren's office, and we looked at each other, and were like, how do you think the game's going to do? And he had a lot more experience than I did shipping games, and he knew the whole process, you know? And, and I, we both had this feeling, like, I don't know, okay, I guess, maybe, but we were not confident. I remember yeah. distinctly that conversation. And the game shipped, and over the next few months, it just lit us up. You know, People kept telling us how much they loved the game, and it was a game changer. And Doug Church told us, like, you're going to have a very good GDC this year. You know. And it was just like, again, another person with tons of industry experience. And I, I didn't at that point. I was like, what do you mean, Doug, you know? And, uh, and so then we set out to make the sequel. There was a complete turnover of the engineering staff uh, we picked up a bunch of people from Looking Glass because Looking Glass folded. We went to two projects, which was a mistake. We added the Thief uh, 3 team, yep. uh, which I love those guys. And it was you know great to work with, around them and all that. But like we just didn't have the management chops, honestly, for, for all of that. And I had never been a project director before, mm. um, so that was difficult. And uh, we ended up in a terrible situation. We were rewriting our the engine. Uh, and I remember, I think Tim Sweeney told Warrens, like, your guys should not try to write an engine, and you know, uh, and we sort of arrogantly pushed ahead with that, you know. And uh,
1: what were you using for the first one?
0: Unreal. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. All um, right. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Tim Sweeney, uh, <laughs> had a vested interest, probably, but right. But still, he but was you right. Probably yeah. right. Yeah. And Eidos pressured us to like make it more console friendly, but yeah. we also wanted to support our PC roots, and we had not done multi-platform very well before that's its own skill set and a lot of these things are just known now right like you know don't rewrite the engine uh you know um make sure the game works for all the platforms the right way the way the audience expects and and also when you make an ip the other thing i think that's more interesting is we had just done something and some of our mentors really in a not pressuring kind of way but like in a when somebody that you really love and respect and you think is way smarter than you says something, if they say it intensely, you take it to heart. Right. And so some of our mentors said things like, don't just rehash what you did before. Yeah. And it's like, that's not the way you should think about IP, honestly. Now I'm older, wiser Harvey would be, if I was in the room, I'd be like, you, shut the fuck up. You know, not literally in those words, but like, you're wrong. Uh because there is now an audience for this game that has an expectation yeah. and you need to meet those expectations you need to also exceed them right uh, so sequeling a game is really challenging because you're you're you don't want to just keep working to an increasingly small audience right uh you need to you need to make a bigger audience probably or because you probably spent more on the game but uh or the same audience right so like if you look at games like the from software stuff. Elden Ring is like the brilliant payoff to right. all of that. It's the
1: culmination of yes. a decade and a half.
0: Before, right. right. It's all of their thinking about how this monster works and about how this system of leveling up works. And uh, it's yeah. it's just brilliant. I mean the sequel
1: is an opportunity because you know so much more yeah. than you did when you started the first one. Right.
0: But if you but if you're told like, you know, I mean it's so <laughs> we probably took some of the wrong things to heart. We bit off more than we could chew, management-wise and technology-wise, and why we probably didn't have the staff to do all the ambition that we wanted, and that that just happens periodically, right? Sometimes you get it right, and you get more time, and the results are great, and people applaud you for it. Other times, you make almost the same decisions, but you don't get the extra time, or it doesn't quite come together, and people look at you like you're an idiot, right? So, and they'll never understand because they weren't in the middle of it. They yeah. don't. They don't make games, right? Most of them. So. I will say that when Dishonored 2 came along and it was an opportunity to work with this amazing team in Lyon that you know we had worked with remotely before I moved to France for four years, I was like in a weird position because I was like, okay, I worked on the original Deus Ex and then we sequeled it and we didn't do a great job of sequeling it. You know, mm-hmm. there are parts that I love about it, um, but honestly, I can see why you know it was a flawed product, right? It would have been hard to top the first one, given the reaction to it. But nonetheless, nowadays, I'd be more up for that challenge, right? So suddenly, fast forward a number of years, like, God, a lot of years, actually. And we made Dishonored, and people really reacted to Dishonored. And we had the opportunity to sequel our own game. And, uh, you know, (laughs) one of the producers we were working with, a brilliant guy I love named Julian, he was leaving the company, And he was like, whatever you do for this game, you should basically do exactly what we did before. And it was the opposite of what the advice I'd gotten before. And I knew that was also not exactly right, that we Mm -hmm. needed to do something, you know? And so, but it's a really interesting challenge. And it was really a cool moment for me to get the opportunity to work with all these other cool leads that I worked with and say, like, guys, I've been down this road before where we had a hit game that we loved and a lot of people loved. And then we sequeled it and we... And we didn't meet their expectations, right. uh, and we did some things really well, but we did some things poorly, and um, it was disappointing. And I don't want to—I don't want to disappoint our fans, and I don't want to disappoint myself or you. And so here we are. We have a hit game. People love this game. We need to make the follow-up to it. We want to make the follow-up to it. We're burning to make the follow-up to it. How are we going to make it true to the original, feel the same, and yet exceed their expectations and surprise them? And so. We basically made the same game, but we added a completely new character, Emily, with all new powers, uh, and that lit a bunch of people up, like female representation's important. It wasn't as much of a done deal back then, you know. Um, So that was a leap to advance the game by 15 years and make her the protagonist. We really went over the top, our level designers did, like Dana Nightingale, the campaign director in Lyon, and Christophe Carrier uh Joaquin David like those guys like the Clockwork Mansion mission where the walls move mm-hmm. and yep. and the time travel mission a crack in the slab like uh, those are i i those are such heights of level design i am not sure uh, I'll ever have the honor of working with level designers that can top that you know it, it's 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 a thing that only happened because it's a single player game with a team that was working on the follow-up to their own game before and they really, really just uh poured so much into it. And those two all the missions I love in the game, but like those two missions are set pieces. You know, the people play the game and they talk about those missions, you know. Yeah. Um well maybe we should I mean we should probably maybe
1: jump to the beginning of Dishonored, but was what what should we talk about before we kind of get to the first Dishonor? That makes sense.
0: Yeah. So um I had been Fired by Midway, right. um, which was a dark moment for me because I I went there with some friends to work on this crime game based on the movie Heat by Michael Mann, who I love, and that kind of got away from me, like got away from us, uh, because the company corporate wide had a push to quote make everything open world, okay, uh, One of which those moments. was yeah, <laughs> which was like you know hey eventually a bunch of studios imploded and you know yep. sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, but like, um, it didn't work out for us. And, um, also there was pressure to do two games at once. And I just, I just think you have to be a miracle worker to do that. If you, if your game is any kind of scale or scope, yep. like you're splitting all your leads, the focus of the studio, like you, you rob Peter to pay Paul, you know, it, it just like, Uh, You steal from the future to pay the present, uh, however you should say that, I don't know, but, like... um, And so a bunch of us jumped over to work on this shooter based on Area 51, and, you know, I think with more time, it would have been cool, but, like, um, there was a left-trigger contextual thing where you could send your squad mates off to do stuff, and it was in suburbs and gas stations in modern America before that was done a lot, Um, and they had a morale system where like if things were going well as a positive feedback loop, they would be on fire. And if things were going poorly, they would start to buckle and you'd have to then use your grenades and other resources to like bring them back up or play exceptionally well for a while to bring them back up. I think it had potential. It was kind of an allegory to how the U S sells weapons to groups, that do questionable things and then goes to war to fight them because they're bad guys, <laughs> you know, um, there were promising elements, but we just weren't in the right place to do two big games like that. And, uh, I crunched for a long time. I was not in a good place in my life and, um, you know, went off to the press and said the wrong things and got fired you know, Hey, I paid for it, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I took some time off. I don't remember how much, like six months or something. Um, and I was gonna—I was thinking about going out west. There was an offer to go work on Bioshock Two or something. Uh, my friend Jordan Thomas, who I played D and D with, was directing that. Uh, or my other friend Rafael Colantonio was like, "We could really use you here at Arcane." And they didn't have a project yet, but I—I I knew some of them and I loved them. And it was a small group, and they were in France and Austin, uh, Lyon, France, and Austin, Texas. And so. After talking to them, I, I became like a partner in Arcane. And uh, we worked for a couple of years on different things before <coughs> and it was a desperate time before we finally hooked up with Bethesda and we were working on different pitches that folded one by one. But finally we stumbled into, you know, this ninja pitch mm-hmm. called Dishonored. And Raph and I took it away and said we'd like to revisit this and, and you know, like change it dramatically and we we changed it to what you know the modern steampunk version of Dishonored. Um not modern, but you know what I mean? The, right. the version we friend. shipped. And uh and we just had so much fun with it. It was like a pressure cooker. Raph and I shared an office. We traveled together, hotels across Europe and America.
1: What was your goal, for the project? Like at the Yes yeah, like so, What did you
0: want to achieve? Um it's weird because Dishonored or because Arcane at the time was Wanted to work with Bethesda. We had the option of maybe working on a thief game because it wasn't sure, it wasn't clear what um, Idos was doing. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were talking to different people. Uh, eventually they would work with Square Enix. They would be owned by Square Enix, I guess. But um, there was an option for a Blade Runner game that mm-hmm. I was super excited about, you know. And we were, we were trying to get pitches off the ground for both of those. Yeah. And one by one they folded, right? Um, and so... We looked at the thing that we were going to work on with with Bethesda, Dishonored, and you know there was a little bit of what we had both wanted to do. Like it was a little bit Deus Ex, it was a little bit Thief, um, and so it was kind of structurally more like Deus Ex, but like gameplay was like you know going to be like Thief. But Arcane had also done a bunch of cool stuff with swords and and melee combat, like through their arcs Fatalis and uh, Dark Messiah games, you know that they were known for, and so it was just a it was a confluence of cool stuff. We had Sebastian Mitzon, mm-hmm. the art director, and Victor Ensenov, the visual design director, yeah. me and Raf, and a really strong level design team and a really strong core tech team, and just like a bunch of good people coming together yeah. at once to.
1: But you were really, in, in many ways, revisiting in a different context the game systems behind ASX, right? Like, I mean, that's some way you could one way you could look at it.
0: And Thief, I think. Yeah, Um, sure. But also, Ark's Vitalis, or not Ark's Vitalis, but Dark Messiah, because the sword fighting is. Sure. Raph had spent a lot of time with the team working that stuff out. But one thing that we did was, I think Doug Church came by the office at some point. And, you know, I love Doug so much. He's my hero and, like, did some of the most pivotal games, I think, for me in terms of learning and growing and loving games. Um, And I think we asked him, like, if you had Thief to do over again, what would you change? And he said, I wouldn't make it slow. I'd find a way to make it fast. Right. And so we really noodled on that for a while. You know, like, instead of rewarding the player for moving slowly, can you reward the player for moving fast? And we didn't exactly solve that problem. But, you know, we started... um, we certainly didn't do the thing where, like, you're gonna creep along really slowly and not be seen, right? Like, stay hidden, stay out of the view cone, don't make noise, for sure. But then one of the powers was called Blink. Yep. And it wasn't given away at first. It was just, like, one of the powers you could buy. And, t- man, toward the end of the project, things weren't working. We are having trouble drawing attention to certain systems. Um, and... Uh, you know, we made a lot of changes. We Bethesda's very good, they gave us more time a couple of times and we polished the game and it it went from being like okay to being really great, we thought. But along that way, there was a moment where we were sitting there playing the game uh, and the tuning was bad at one point. Like it was like chopping wood to fight people. And so, I think an accident happened uh, where one day the fatalities would just automatically happen. Anytime you attacked, you would either sever a limb or do a fatality. And it was glorious. You wander into a fight with five people because our rule was always like one guard is trivial, two is pretty easy too, three will cost you some health, four or five you might die and you might use a bunch of resources. But, like, you'd wander into these fights with five guards, and you'd just be, like, lopping heads off and arms and legs and instant stabbing guys through the heart with a synced animation for that, and it was just glorious. It just, everybody died like that. And we called it the Wolverine build. We jokingly, you know, we knew we couldn't ship the game like that. But we said, what if it was more like that than it was... Like chopping wood right so we went through these major changes toward the end of the project even three quarters of the way through the the game i think we added the non-lethal resolution for assassination targets there was a whole idea i pitched about like um we can already avoid the guards just by systems but like what if even the targets we had alternate? and the team came up with these brilliant ways to do that we came up with some of them but the team came up with more brilliant ones that replaced some of the ones that we came up with and one day we were looking at the game and raf said what if everybody had blink what if Blink was part of the core power set, mm-hmm. and we tried that? Because Raph's a big proponent of like, well, let's just try it. Let's try something. Yeah. And then there was a little game design around the mana meter because we we wanted like you to not have enough mana to use all your powers all the time because that was a very precious resource. If you could just possess anyone at any time, you could just the game would be no fun, right? The game would be no fun your economy of mana potions is important in that. But if the mana bar, like the health bar, when it's depleted, comes back just enough to let you blink, then what it means is you can blink every so often for free. And suddenly it was transformative because it kind of gets back to that thing Doug Church was talking about. Like, well, I can play like Thief. I can hide behind this wall or under the table. I can be silent. I can move slowly. I can wait for the guard to turn his back, etc., but periodically, if I need to, I can just get to the rafters instantly. Yeah. If I need to, I can get to that corner and step around it. You know.
1: It's kind of hard for me to imagine the game without blink because it feels like it's <laughs> such a core part of yeah. traversal. Like when when I played it, you know,
0: like exactly when people hear that it wasn't part of the package, and we'd have people just like, "Oh, I'm gonna play Dishonored. Oh, I haven't bought any powers yet. I'm just playing it like Thief or what, or like Dark Messiah." And then at some point, like oh, I bought a couple powers. I bought you know the uh, the one that lets me, you know, uh, insta turn people to ash when I kill them, right. uh, or um, shadow kill, or possession, which was a lot of work, you know, for the programmers, um, but it was so much fun because you could eavesdrop with it. It's basically our disguise mechanic, you know, in a sense. But it also led to rat tunnels and fish tunnels and all these other things that are in the game. And it was like, man, those are cool powers. But they, if you really like, people would say, really, you should play the game with blink. Trust me, don't sleep on Blink. Yeah. And we realized that people were having fun and they were being more active and they could get themselves out of stealth situations so you didn't have to be so hardcore, reload about stealth, you know? Um, and so it really was a, it really was not a part of the core package until that suggestion from Raph and we made it so, and it changed the game, you know? And so we realized immediately, the, the game needs to be sneaking, fighting with a sword and Blink. And anything else you add is is bonus, you know.
1: Did you have to redesign a lot of geometry after you made that choice? or? Uh,
0: you know, if the level designers were here, they would probably yell at me. Christophe <laughs> Carrier would probably yell or, or something. But, like, I don't think so. I think, a, you know, it's one of those metrics things, right, where you figure out your mantle, your climbing height, and your jump yep. height and all that, and you don't mess with it for the project. But inevitably, on every project, we break it at some point, and it, And so I think, like, we went back and forth because was like, hey, Blink is cool, but it's not cool enough. I want to get to that roof. I want to go rooftop to rooftop. And people would be like, no way, because now you can get out of the levels or now you can skip the whole encounter or whatever. And so it was a fight back and forth to get that distance right uh, so that it wasn't too forgiving, permissive, but it was not too restrictive either. At first it was way too restrictive. Um, And then it had to work with the mantle code, the climbing code. So like in our games, if you jump and at the right moment, you hit the jump again, and you're nearer the edge of a wall or something. You you muscle up. You pull yourself up onto it. And that's a way to jump and catch the edge of a roof and pull yourself onto the roof or whatever. But with blink, you can blink mantle, right? So the cursor, uh, this gets back to Layla's comment about UI, like... You aim the cursor at something, and you know where you're gonna blink. Yeah. But if you put it at the lip of a building, or or whatever you want to, it changes to be like, oh, Hit the
1: arrow right? When
0: I get there, I'm gonna like pull myself up onto it, yep. and it's and so it it, you know, that's not a feature in other games that I know of. But that that's, you take a couple of things that are unique to your game, and then you say, well, what if I could blink into a mantle? Like, well, that's a new combination that I haven't seen before ever. Well, now it requires a new UI, and it requires a slightly uh, some touchy feely code that someone had to write, you know. But yeah. Yeah. So there were there were definitely changes, you know.
1: The other key thing, like, besides Blink, was the the feature where it would show you where all of the, I forgot what the exact names are, I don't know what, the runes or the other, you know, where they the all heart, were in the level. Mean, yeah. 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 What was that called? The heart. Yeah. Yeah. The heart, right. Um, that seemed really important because that drove <laughs> me to yeah. you know, explore the level, which I, is actually something I've had a problem with with a lot of those games mm-hmm. where I'm like, I find some some, like, uh, point of least resistance, right? And I exploit it, and then I'm done,
0: Mm -hmm. right? It's a classic immersive sim problem, and, like, people figure out their two things, like sneak and stab, and they just do that over and over, even though there's all these other options, right? And how do you get them, how do you break them out? Well, add robots, because you can't stab a robot. You know, now you have to do this other, you have to use a grenade. Uh, That's what we did with Dishonored 2, right? There's clockwork soldiers. Um, So there's all these tricks for, like, pulling you out of your comfort zone, it's kind of cool that you have a comfort zone, and then you can go back to it every now and then, but you don't want to just do that over and over. Um, but uh, Like, I remember like I only I only possessed a rat because I
1: was like, oh, I can use it to climb into this thing to get the rune right. that's inside, right? And like I was like, that's really effective.
0: Yeah, but the, the heart was interesting because at some point we talked about, I think Raph and I were kicking around the idea of a sound device where you like, could like triangulate with beats yeah. basically like, and use sound to, to try to home in on something. Um, and uh, you know, we end up l- using it as a rune detector, I think, um, but then at some point we were like, what if it was the heart of the Empress, which is kind of gruesome, right? This yeah. is the person you loved and got murdered and you got blamed for it and all that, and it's possessed. And so then we added a voice to it, and we started adding like commentary on the world and sad commentary, right? But then we added, we started for Dishonored 2, we expanded it even more, we used it as like a morality. Actually Dishonored 1 had this a little bit, but it wasn't a systems per se. We added a a morality system where you look at a guard and it would whisper secrets about the guard. And so people would then do, this is a great example of like emergent player decision making or whatever. People would do playthroughs where they would see a guard in the distance and they would use the heart to say some things about that guard. And then like, if he sounded vile, they would go murder him with extreme prejudice. And if he, instead, if we said something like, you know, he has three kids at home and hates his boss (laughs) and wishes, he didn't have to be a guard or, you know, some, something along those lines.
1: It's amazing how small it can be. They would spare that guy. Yeah. yeah, It changes the player's reaction. right?
0: Right. And so the heart ended up being this super pivotal, thing that we destroy in dishonored 2 spoiler alert um but like you know it was not only to find ruins which you could then another level design trick is like well if there's a thing that players care about that's elective or ancillary or whatever put it in oddball places to pull them in those directions because they're already going to go on the golden path they're already going to go to the mission markers or whatever they're already going to go where they see a big smoke column but, like, these things can be put anywhere. And then suddenly you're down in a sewer under the mission location that you didn't even know existed. Right. Um, you know, you're exploring that barge off yeah. Liberty Island.
1: You mentioned the uh, the something about it maybe being closer to sound originally. Like, at it, at some level, it's kind of ham-fisted, right? It's like, there's the thing. Ooh. It's this far away. It's exactly right here. Like, yeah. did it take a while to, to get to the point where it's that that direct?
0: I think so. I think... We in the same way we wanted to try like there's no HUD and then realized what a bad idea that is. We I think we wanted to try a very subtle system of like yeah. pinging your way towards something and it was just like, Man, that's a pain in the ass and people want to know where something's at. And the yeah. challenge is getting to it, not knowing where it's yeah. at, you know. I,
1: I think this is a great example of game design because it's <clears> it's <throat> you always think things should be subtler than they actually are. Right. You know, it's just this weird thing, you yeah. know, that like you you, you, you know get to get really, like, oh, we'll make it super interesting. But, like, there's so much else going on in the game, right? Like, again, it's yeah, it's the whole point is how, how do I even get there? That's right. the mystery, right? So Yeah,
0: there's a there's a thing where, like, you know, we are to games the way, like, hipsters are to music or whatever or foodies mm. are to food. Right. And I'll hear people on the team often say, oh, let's not be so heavy-handed. Let's do a subtler version of that. I have this favorite team member who left at some point, and he went to Bungie. Seth, who's a good game designer that we worked with and a producer. And um, on his way out the door, <laughs> I was talking about something with Redfall. And I was talking about vampire gods that had changed the world and, like, you know, what you were going to do. And and I said something like, maybe there are 13, but wait, is that too heavy-handed that it's 13? Right. And he turned to me and he was like, I think Arcane needs to lean more into the things that seem heavy handed to you because <laughs> that makes it sound cool and spooky when you say that. Right. And, and if you make it 14 or whatever, it doesn't make it, you know, yeah. and I was like, okay, thanks for that. And he left, you know, and I, we, Ricardo and I, Ricardo bear and I worked together for over 20 years. He's the creative director at arcane. And we point to that little advice from Seth all the time. He's totally really? right. You know? Yeah. Um, so every now and then I hear somebody say, is
1: that too obvious or whatever? Yeah.
0: I I, I wish the music was a little subtler here and I'm just like, I don't. I'm glad it overtly (laughs) goes to combat music there, you know, uh, because players use that as feedback, you know, or what if the lighting was a little less high drama movie and it was a little subtler. Eh, I like the God rays or whatever. Right. And I I know you, you need both. Right. And you need experts in your field that are keeping you from doing embarrassing stuff or being too heavy handed. But like, we overestimate all the time that area. Right. And the players, Actually, need direct information. They actually like dramatic things. You yeah. know, they like
1: contrast. People like contrast. You know, yeah. For the the story. i It makes me curious because you know I kind of played, you know one, you know played it through. I didn't do it multiple times, right? And you know I poisoned. I poisoned the both, right? Yeah. Um, and like, does the story work so they everyone gets killed no matter what, or does it preserve? You know, is there a path where one of them doesn't get killed?
0: Uh, in terms of dishonor? Yeah. Yeah um yeah you can leave campbell alive you can leave uh kernow alive and his his niece Callista works with you at the helms pit pub right uh and she's thankful if and less cynical if like her uncle lives um yeah i think you have to knock him out and take him to a specific dumpster which was kind of a failing of level design but like but there's a, there's a very adventure gamey way to like where you have to deposit him basically. If Campbell lives, um, you you either have to kill Campbell or brand him with the heretics brand, uh, so that he's excommunicated and persona non grata. Like he's an untouchable cast member at that point. Basically, um, those are your options. You have to eliminate him right. in one way or the other. Right. So. Um, but but the guard captain you can keep alive and you can literally play the game without killing anyone you know so
1: yeah for all this this stuff i mean do you do you, how do you approach this type of branching like you know is yeah. it an opportunity or a challenge or like what do you
0: well i think again that's one of the things that makes me like this kind of game is that so many games are production driven here's how much time we have for the system, and here's how the level works, et cetera, or here's how the levels work, here's how the game, the missions work. Um, And that's global, and it's efficient, and it can be tracked very well. But then there's this other layer, this underworld working where an individual level designer is like, but what I really wanna do in this level is have this moment where blah, 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 and all I have to do is talk to this architect and this environmental artist and this programmer, and, and we can do this little scene here. Um, and then therefore it's weird, it's like unexpected, and it's only seen once in the whole game. Um, and it's a production nightmare, of course. You know, it, it, it is inefficient, it costs a lot, it's, um, it's untrackable, you know? We need a unique asset, for what? We need a poisoning lazy Su- Susan, what the, what are you talking about? Yep. Um, but it leads to these magic moments, you know? And it's, uh, we just say up front, it's okay to have a certain percentage of bespoke Unique assets for an environmental storytelling scene, or a particular branch, or whatever you know. So, yeah. Cool.
1: All right. Um, well, uh, you've talked about the two some
0: already, mm-hmm. kind of like
1: how cool it was to be able to, you know, do it, do it again. But the, what 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 have we not touched on that might be worth we talked about? I mean, what, what was the big things you wanted to improve, right on yeah. the on the first one?
0: Uh God. Now you're challenging my mind you know so like we we did the heart again and we improved it we made it since players were going to actually use that mechanic you know to determine who to kill and who not to kill who they thought was evil or not we assigned morality up front I think we do we did some and then we did some weighting. I think about like the chaos system so we probably didn't need that but we you know we went deeper in that area um, We did the same non-lethal resolution thing uh, that we had done before, Um, but what else was it we added? We added some other major thing to the to the assassination targets and the outcome. And like, just pause here for a moment because I yeah, I was trying to think of the other stuff that we did because I know there's a couple of big things that I'm spacing right now. Um, and I'm I'm keep I'm getting stuck on one that we almost added but didn't, um, and it's embarrassing to not be able to remember it, even though it's only been five <laughs> years or whatever. Yeah, it's
1: like one of your most recent
0: projects. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like if you think about how much time has passed since the pandemic, it's like
1: oh yeah, sure. It's like I, I
0: moved back from France, started transitioning into my new role. The team there was finishing up their game. Pray we started Redfall and then like the pandemic happened and it just feels like a million years have passed since then. You know? Yeah, there's, there's something eluding me that we added to Dishonored 2 that's killing me. I, I, I'll remember it later and it's gonna drive me crazy, but um, we, one of the things we did in Dishonored 2 is we worked with some factions that we had not had before, you know, more of the, the DLC we did, The Knife of Dunwall and Brigmore Witches, we really liked Delilah. And her coven, uh, and so we we included them a lot. Delilah was the the big villain. The, the The game is a coup where Emily's kicked out of her throne, and her father, her main ally, is lost to her, and she has to like work her way back home. She has to leave home and then work her way back home and take her throne back. Um, and I love Delilah as a character, and I love all of the big assassination mm-hmm. targets in it, the Duke and. Brianna Ashworth and all those people. And the locations are just amazing. So just basically everything we did, we took over the top. You know, it's like, um, God, the the mission where you go to, I can't remember right now what it's called. I mean, the um, the big museum, um, what is it called? Oh, well, where Brianna Ashworth's at, and uh, she's like Delilah's right hand. And it just is full of these like Galapagos-like you know creatures and um it's just this grandiose space um and i love it so much it's full of these irreverent young witches and uh you know they teleport around and they're sitting up on things hanging from the ceiling and the overheard conversations are really fun there and um it's just like an amazing space the architects just killed it on on that um yeah, and Kieran Jindosh is one of my favorite characters that I've ever worked on, uh, the inventor from the game. Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah. There was a moment where I was working with Sashka Duvall, and we were kicking around ideas, and we knew Kieran Jindosh was this voice actor that I had wanted to work with in Dishonored 1, but he got cut for a celebrity. But I always remembered him, because I was like, that guy, there's something about that guy's voice. John Guggenhuber, I think, or something, is his name, but like he's literally the voice of Captain Crunch in the commercial. Okay, but he just killed it in the in the <laughs> right. you know Dishonored stuff. For me, I, I love him, and so we cast him as Kieran Jindosh, this clever, uh, arrogant inventor, and then we ended up using him for one of the major missions, the Clockwork Mansion, which is like one of the centerpieces of the game. Right. We ended up using him in the trailer for the game that launched, you know, Dishonored Two. That announced it. Uh, and then he also, we had, we, Sasha and I were working and we had these clockwork soldiers. And they're this like big ceramic and metal and wood, beautiful steampunk uh, characters that Sebastian Mitson's art team, Sergei Kolsov, and all these guys had, had worked on, Jean Luc Manet. Um, and we just loved them. But we were like, should they talk? What should they do? And I think I remember I was thinking about programmers and how they put in lines that the code will spit out if if you hit a certain thing right if the game asserts or fails in this way spit out a line of text that tells me what happened here yeah and so we just said i said like what if periodically those bots said something like if this plays, the machine has encountered an explosive or something to that effect, right? And so we recorded a bunch of those in Kieran Jindosh's voice. And it kind of harkened back to an idea I wanted to play with in Dishonored or Deus Ex 2, actually with the bots. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to use text-to-speech to just cover a wide array of AI situations that the bots could find themselves in with all these cra- crazy player powers. And instead we baked some stuff, like, oh, the player just cloaked or whatever, you know. Um, but like, the player is on the roof near that burning dumpster, um, you know, whatever. There's, there's all these combinations with tags you could do, um, you know, if you had good text-to-speech and all that stuff. And so we were thinking about that for Deus Ex 2. Um, but anyway, for this feature, it seemed like a fun programmer kind of thing to do, to have Kieran Jindosh in his own voice like a bunch of things, like if this happens, the machine is on fire, you know. Right. Um, if this plays, and so we did a bunch of those as barks, and as a result, that one voice actor's voice is in the trailer. One of the main characters. Right. His. You know, anytime you fight the bots, you hear his voice, and uh, it was just such a pleasure. But like, that was just such a fun little idea, and uh, people seem to love it. And mm-hmm. people that are game developers understand that it's a nod to whatever you call that, you know, the sort of like. Um, you know, a cert code or whatever. Yeah, right. Notes. You know. <laughs> that comes through. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. What, what I would say about Redfall is it's a, you know, we wanted to do a big spooky New England town. Part of it feels historic and part of it feels very mundane or not mundane but very familiar like liquor stores and, uh, you know, neon lights and wires overhead. Right. Um, and you know, we wanted to do our open world game, but we wanted to map Arcane's values around environmental storytelling and multiple pathways and all that, too. And it's incredibly challenging. We want it to work as a single player game. Of course, you can solo your way through it, it's all fine. Or you can play with up to four people as a co op squad, cooperating together and bantering back and forth. There's this dialogue system that's very dynamic where the characters get to know each other more over time. Um, and, you know, it is a gigantic challenge because open world games, what you don't realize is like, you know, quote linear. I hate that term because our games are kind of nonlinear, but like linear series of levels, you're cutting out all the space in between. And it turns out there's more space in between than there is in the actual mission. Um, you don't think of, I didn't think of it that way, but it's true. And so as soon as you make an open world game, my God, you have so much much space space to fill. It's crazy. Um,
1: and is are you trying to get something interesting in all that space or, or is it okay to have
0: it's space okay to have space? empty areas for sure but like there're dynamic there are enough procedural systems in Redfall where like we we can fill it you know and and there are a little out of the way you want to go to the out of the way places and you go like well because this isn't important area is not an important area it'd be cool to put something interesting in here in the attic or whatever uh, because some players are going to find that. And that's our that's our instinct. And so this space is just, like, hard to do. And then just as we started getting off the ground with it, the pandemic hit. Yeah. And the work from Home Revolution. This is, no matter what, this is going to be our pandemic game. Yeah. However it, it turned out, you know. Um, and I have high hopes for it, of course. But, like, uh, my God, there's never been anything in my career like what we've sure. just gone through. You know, and it's fun. The world's coming out of it. We're at GDC today. Uh, and... You know, it feels like if you're double vaccinated and boosted and you've had COVID, you know, and you wear a mask in the mall or whatever or on a plane, right? life can go kind of back to normal for most of us, right? Um, but we're still in the middle of or We're still, you know, working on this it. big project that yeah. has been in the shadow of this pandemic. And uh, uh, it's really an interesting novel experience in, in my career. Um, but, again, high hopes for it. You know?
1: Yeah. How, how is it balancing four player co op versus playing? Yeah. Because it seems like very different. It sounds like you're taking two huge new challenges on,
0: like two moving or to, more. Moving yeah, to open for Open sure. world and moving to right you know, with yeah. multiple players. Like a bunch of new challenges actually, like open world and uh, co op, but preserving our values and co- preserving the way we like you know games to work, mm-hmm. and then this sort of a lot of procedural stuff, um, you know, and then also like the dynamic difficulty stuff where like if you play a game like Diablo and you're, you know, you're playing with two people, it's different than if you're playing with four people. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of stuff. And if we had known the pandemic was coming, we would have been more cautious. <laughs> Let's do a focus <laughs> game. Something where we've done before. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how it goes. But you know, that ambition also produces amazing stuff. And occasionally there are these moments, these emergent moments in, all of those open world games, but, you know, certainly in ours where it's just, like, really cool. The mix of powers, the way we do powers, and procedural content and our systemic AI and the day cycle changing to night and all that. Sometimes there's stuff that happens. a vampire, you know, comes after you and moves into ultraviolet light that's been set up by a dynamic encounter from one of the bellwether security people with their tripods with UV lights, and the vampire begins to petrify and, um, you know... You know, then you get into a shootout with the bellwether guys and you know the only way out of it is you turn off the UV lights and now the vampire's fighting them and you're hiding or whatever there's just like there's stuff like that that happens in the game um, and it's it's cool you know it, it's cool when it happens you know so yeah um, man it's so scary and so much work yeah uh, sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: cool. All right so now that we kind of we've had kind a of present I, I usually like to finish by asking. You know why is it that you decided to you know devote your professional life to video games? Why has it been that
0: important to you? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, and I wonder I, I bet there's a lot of people that have cool answers to that like like you know I've worked with people that went to MIT and studied robotics and they they know they could go work for Boston Dynamics and triple their money or whatever. Right. Um, I've worked with people who could go into the banking system tomorrow and make a million dollars a year or something. You know, I, I heard some numbers the other day about what Google pays engineers. Oh yeah. We're aware of
1: that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a challenge
0: out of the, out of college. Yeah. And then after, if you've got 10 years experience, and I was just like, that can't be true. Yeah. 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 Um, But I guess it is. Um, But you know, and those, those are probably all fascinating. They probably have fascinating answers to that, but I, I don't know that I do because i don't know what choice i had
1: it doesn't need to be fascinating it just needs to be your answer right? Yeah. Like, like what's the thing that drives you
0: i don't think i had a choice like i uh i didn't grow up with anybody who had a cool profession like i've had friends whose both parents were lawyers or whatever and they're yep. fascinating people and they have amazing cocktail parties and they know all the playwrights in town or whatever like that wasn't my experience i i didn't get a degree because the only thing my dad ever said to me about college when you grow up that way nobody nobody says what school are you gonna go to you know your grandfather <laughs> went to so and so but right. your mom graduated from Basser. you know yeah and it's like that just never happens yeah. the only thing my dad ever said was i guess you know i can't send you to college yeah and so uh you know and i i'm not great at many things uh, i'm a pretty good communicator and maybe creative and um and i can pull things together and agitate people or motivate them toward something, um, but it's somewhat arbitrary. And, you know, um, and I love escapist fiction and I love video games, um, but I didn't grow up in Hollywood, you know, So, it, um, and I didn't grow up in Silicon Valley. And so, like, sometimes I'm like, what else would I have done? Right. Like, I guess I could have, I, my earliest jobs were things like fast food or convenience stores, you know, um, working at the all night gas station between at the, at the border of my town where it goes to Houston on this highway, bulletproof glass and a little booth, um, with the drawer that you slide in and out to people Yeah, saw such crazy things, you know, amazing things in the middle of the night, a truck (laughs) screams off the highway chasing this car. The door of the car opens. This woman screams and falls out of it like a zombie film, right? And she's running across the parking lot toward the little booth. It's 3 in the morning. Dude jumps out of the truck with a baseball bat and starts chasing her. And I have, like, three seconds to decide to shoot the bolt and open the door and let her in. Yeah. Or are they working together and they're robbing the place, like, you know. And so that's a setup right there. They're clearly from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So I open the door. Yeah. And then shoot the bolt and get on the pa and tell him i'm calling the police and yeah. he takes off she's wrecked and crying i'm like you know what did what, what happened she's like i cut him off on the highway and he went crazy wow now there's yeah. a little statement about you know uh men are afraid women are going to humiliate them and women are afraid men are going to kill them you know yeah. it's, it, there's mm-hmm. some truth to that right and so those are my jobs before the military and then there was the military and uh you know satellite communication stuff but then desert storm happened while I was in and so suddenly I was in wartime military and then after that I went to Saudi Arabia for a while and just like crazy stuff happened but like um you know discovering games was like the first thing I could get paid for that I loved and I love the people that make games and I love the process I don't like the doldrums in the middle Sure. Honestly, I like the beginning and the end mm-hmm. um, when you can, like, blue sky and then you can tune towards something cool.
1: Sid so has a phrase exactly like that. He does? Yeah, he oh, says the best go. part of a game is the very beginning and the very very end. <laughs> Excellent.
0: So I, I have at least one thing in common with Sid Meier, <laughs> thank God. Um, but um, anyway, uh, and all my heroes are, you know, you know whether it was like I was in middle school and read Ursula K. Le Guin or... Uh, or you know, whether it was Warren Robinette on Adventure, yeah. you know, it, like it, it's it's people that transported me somehow, you know, um, and so I, I've heard from so many people now that come up to Raph or come up to me or, and say like, well, Deus Ex changed my life or Dishonored changed my life or, you know, seeing Emily Caldwin, seeing you on stage and announcing that Emily Caldwin was the hero was for me as a college girl was like, you know, an amazing moment, you know. Um, I now work with people who played the games that we make when they were like 12 or whatever, you know? when guy was like, you're older than my dad. I was like, fuck you, <laughs> you know? But um, anyway, yeah, uh, I don't know what the answer is other than um, I found something that I could do pretty well and I could do it badly at times too because I've made lots of mistakes, but I've tried to get better and have good men- I've had good mentors I've had patient people, patient bosses. My first k- boss, Kay Gilmore, protected me from getting fired at least three times. You know, um, Warren Spector has the patience of a saint because I was a I was a hard to work with person back when I worked with him. Um, but you know, like I still love games and I still love systems and I love narrative and I love when a game comes together. I'm an, I'm I'm high right now because. I I'll, I'll be honest with you, I have a confession. I don't like most games and I don't play many games that many that often anymore. Cause they're mostly just the same model sure. that I've seen before or yeah. whatever. But I'm playing inscription and Elden Ring back to back. Right. And they're both enormously good. Yeah. They're both monumental successes in different ways. And I'm just like, I can't I feel like a kid in a candy store. Sure. You know, these yeah. games are so good. Um and so part of the answer is I just love it all. And it's I want to work in games for ten more years. I have at least three big things I want to do, uh, which is ten years is probably not enough. (laughs) Big things like so maybe only two, but um, um, but then the other the other answer to it is I just don't. I just got incredibly lucky, and I just don't know what else I could do. Sure. You know, I I, I worked with an architect in video games who used to design prisons, and he hated it. It was a little soul-killing, and he became a video game artist. But he always said, if this shit falls apart, I'll just go back to making you know buildings, gas stations and malls and whatever. Uh, I know the the business, and I I have the contacts, and I have the degree, and I have the skills, and uh, I'll build houses for people or design houses for people or whatever. And it's like... You know they always make that joke like if you're if you're a programmer and you get sick of games, you just go work at the bank and yeah, triple sure. your income. Yep. If you're an artist or a VFX artist or whatever, Hollywood is desperate for VFX artists or yep. whatever. If you're a game designer, 1-800 bartender. <laughs> is, is, is the running joke, right? Yeah. So I don't know if that's true, but I don't I don't honestly know what else.
1: Yeah, okay to kind of phrase to mention this, but like. You describing that kind of puts the context, puts the things you said to the press when you worked in Midway in a different context, mm. you know, because you're kind of saying, like, you're kind of afraid what else you would do if you couldn't work in games, mm-hmm. right? And mm. to some extent, you put your career at risk.
0: Yeah. yeah. I don't even remember what, exactly what I said. I think it was something to the effect of, um, you know, we, we crunched for a year and then had the game taken away from us at Alpha and shipped, Um we were we wanted it to be better we wanted to spend more time on it and polish it you know um but like uh the scores are punishing we didn't expect them to be that low or whatever and what always happens in press and journalism and i don't think people realize this until they've been around the block a few times is that writers write articles and often they're good articles and editors pick the headlines pick a headline and sometimes their job is not to be fair. Their job is not to represent <laughs> the writer or the subject. Sure. Their job is to get clicks. And so, like, making up a headline, like, why the low scores?" ask? You know, like, I never said that. Yeah. Right? That's bullshit. Um, and it was damaging as fuck. And it was, like, one of two times my life's been burned down by, you know, misrepresentation of some sort or another. I'm not saying I'm without fault, but, um, but man, uh, if I could get some time with that editor, I would talk to him. I'd explain (laughs) some things. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what you're saying is maybe there was a fundamental insecurity there about what I would do otherwise. There was a moment in time my brother was homeless at Mm. one point for a couple of times, actually, Um, and he got it back together, and then it fell apart again, and he was homeless again, and he got it back together. Now he's doing well. But there was a time... um, and this was after Deus Ex, mm-hmm. where I was afraid that what was going to happen, a terrible imposter syndrome, I was afraid that someone was going to figure out that I am making shit up as I go along, and I'm trying to figure it out dynamically as I go. Right. Um, that nobody actually has the blueprint for something as complex as a Dishonored or whatever, right? Um, but that somebody would figure that out, and that I would lose my job, and be laughed out of town and I would end up homeless. And I was afraid of that. And I had this friend, bless him, uh, Chris McCubbin, who worked in pen and paper games. He did a bunch of Steve Jackson games and edited a bunch of game manuals and stuff. But he looked at me and he said, he's from a very different background, and he was like, "Uh, you will never struggle like that. You will always be able to do something or talk to people or enhance the thing you're working on in some way. You should have confidence in that. It will always work out for you because, uh, and frankly, he's very progressive. Also, and he was like, you have fewer systemic hurdles in your path and things like that that you can, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately or sadly, you know, you can you can count on. But like, you know, you, it's probably going to be okay for you because of your ability to communicate and your ability to think and devise and and, and your creative skills and the things you now have done and and are known for or what are known for, you know, that sort of thing. And it gave me a great sense of peace. Um, but I, it took me a while to internalize it, of course. And I think probably lots of game developers feel that way, sure. depending on their background. But even pri- people from privileged backgrounds probably feel that way because someone criticized them at the wrong moment or, uh, or whatever. There's just so much psychology running under the hood all the time, you know. Um, yeah, but I, I hope... Um, you know, I hope everybody has that moment where a friend takes them aside and says, It's gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay, you know. Sure. It's like
1: Yeah. No, we all need that outside expect perspective. Totally. You know? yeah, I've right. I've had a sense at times like, well, I guess, you know, maybe I'm just really good at making Civ type games and that's it, right? You know? Right. And like I was lucky that, you know, I got that opportunity and whatever <laughs> and you know, it's just it's you know, they'll figure out at some point that, that I'm just making this up as I go. Right, I mean that's
0: just yeah. But at this point, aren't you like you're a technologist, you're a programmer, right? And you're a good game designer. And at this point, you have decades of managing people through very difficult creative projects. And you're also you have a track record. You're known for things. Um, I'd say you're in the same boat. <laughs> you know, you're, you're
1: <laughs> right. be okay. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I I don't feel I don't feel yeah. that way now. But right. uh, but yeah, it's it, but I think it I think at some level it comes down to. It's also true, this kind of goes beyond just regular imposter syndrome, to something different, which is when you make a game, you remember when it was just garbage. right and yeah. like you know that we yes we did totally we literally made this up as we went along yeah and some people would come to us and be like well that's amazing you made it up as you went along and we we're like yeah but uh, uh-huh. you know was next do? time like, it might not work out you know it, the worst because,
0: thing is the people who don't believe that you made it up as you went along hmm. they're like god you're a genius you know, Right? it's like man i worked with yeah. this programmer uh dude i loved and You know, I don't know how he would describe our work chemistry, but I learned a lot from him, and I think he's genuinely an amazing soul. He works, again, I think he works with my friend Jordan Thomas now, but his name is Kane Shin, and he worked with us um, on a couple of projects, and he was pivotal to our effort on Dishonored One for sure. Um, But there was a moment where we were working on something, and he kind of like, he said, you know, this model seems to be that you know you and raf are driven and creative and you know um you have some ideas about where you want to go but it's almost seems like the stone soup parable you know because i told the stone soup parable at some point where like the guy grifts his way into town and that's that's a judgy term right right and he promises the people of the town the best soup they've ever eaten it's called stone soup, and they're all intrigued now. Instead yeah. of driving them away, they want to know what this stone soup is. So he says, well, first I'm going to need a big pot full of water, set a fire, boil it, bring some carrots. That help. It's not necessary, but it helps. Yeah. Uh, bring some salt. And he, like, drops in the stone from his pocket. And by the end of the day, of course, they have this enormous cauldron of amazing soup. And everybody's cheering him on or whatever. And it's like, um, you know, and it's like you taste it and you go, what does it need now? Oh, you know what it needs? A little fennel. They taste it again. You know what it would really need is if we sprinkle some Parmesan around the edge here. You know, and it's just like games are you start out in a direction kind of with some North stars, some principles. And then you like aggregate. You take other people's ideas into account. And then you like look at the whole and you go, what do I need to do? or What do we need to do to fix this? And maybe you're not even the one that spots it. Maybe somebody on the team goes, you know what? it's too hard to see the enemies they're too they're wearing dark clothes and it's a dark game you know whatever and you're like oh my god we added little lights to them and it transformed everything or um but you just keep iterating on it toward what are the top three things that suck right now uh and let's double down on all the stuff everybody says they like great cool this is why game developers i think in general have trouble with compliments it's like you don't tell me the things that are <laughs> great about it. I know the things that everybody doesn't, doesn't help doesn't, me. It doesn't yeah. help me at yeah. all. The only thing that will save my skin right now is if you tell me what's terrible about the game, because it's going to go out to the public soon, and I need I need to know what that thing is, right? You know. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, that's sort of like, you know, just trying to get better at what you do and trying to be empathetic while you're still butting heads with people, and your natural chemistry is sometimes great, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they're doing an amazing job and all they need is a pat on the back. Sometimes they're doing a terrible job and they're making other people miserable. And you have to be the one that's like, dude, you're making people miserable. Stop. Here's yeah. what you're doing. And they're going to hate you for that. So how do you get through all of that and not be a monster? You know, um, Because let's be honest, you can't just sit there and, and be an angel and not ever get into conflict with people because then the people on the team that aren't great are going to be, making other people cry or whatever you know and it, it, it's it's um you know uh it's an impossible task at some level uh and i've said before like i because i worked in games 28 years now you know i hope my ratio of good interactions to bad is is good it's, it's on the favorable side but i know that across those years there have been a number of times when i made bad decisions creatively or technically, or managerially, or from a production standpoint, I wasn't on my best behavior, or I didn't have a great day, and probably impacted somebody in a, in a terrible way. I hope rarely, but um, it's just incredibly hard. And that, I think that's why, you know, musicians will step up onto a stage, and they'll Play something and the feedback is immediate. Yeah. Like if people cheer you or whatever, I guess it, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a musician. My friend Rafael Colantonio, he plays live shows all the time with a band um, uh, called Weird Wolves, which I just realized I think earlier I called their company Weird Wolf. It's Wolf Eye. Yeah. Um, but but he he plays all the time and he talks about that immediate feedback from the audience and how vital it is to, uh, to him as a creative person. But like writers don't get that game developers don't get that so any scrap of it we get where somebody walks up at the end of a speech uh, and wait you see them waiting in the wings and they just i just want to tell you that when i was a kid i played deus Ex, and it made me want to go to college because i wanted to be able to hack computers (laughs) i don't know whatever and it's like or it changed my life in some way or I, i played dishonored at a bad moment uh, or, you know what, I'm trans, and there was good representation of trans people in Dishonored 2. Or, you know, I needed to see a woman as a hero, stabbing dudes in the face, you know, whatever whatever it is for them. Um, it is, like, you cling to that. Yeah. Like, you're you, you just like, you know what, all I see are the bug lists. All I see is the the critiques. All I, uh, I live in the world where, like you said, you've seen the game early on, which is garbage. And I, I don't know how, I don't know, I think you're right, I don't know if players the average player knows how bad games are. Mm -hmm. Like, do they assume that, like, you know, somebody's over here working on a beautiful scene and somebody over here is writing some code, and then one day you put them together together and and that's Elden Ring or whatever, they don't realize that, like, the gray box phase and the broken lighting phase and the physics phase and the AI's not working phase and, like, everything is just absolute mediocrity or terrible Hateful to play, it crashes every five minutes or whatever, and then suddenly the clouds part and you get a build that's like you can see the game you want to make somewhere in the distance, you know, uh, and it's it's gratifying. But like, but yeah, it's it's uh, getting that feedback from people that the game was meaningful to them, and I'm I'm in a weird position. I think maybe there are many people like this, um, people with a lot more money than me, probably, but like. To be in a position where you've worked on a couple of games that people are still talking about 10 years later is really rare, I think. Yeah. Uh, most game developers, they slog their most people try to get into games and they get rebounced off, or they get in and it's too toxic where they work yeah. or whatever. Um, or they struggle for years and they just get crushed and nothing good comes of it. I, I went to free play one time in Melbourne and I talked to all these Australian developers and they were working on they were working on some like budget software. That their bosses was literally their bosses were literally calling shovelware, yeah. and they're were, they're were working insane hours and they were paid nothing and they were just treated like absolute you know peons, and I had worked on Deus Ex and I think they 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 they, they saw me as somebody who like had like won the lottery or something right and in a sense I guess that, that was kind of true uh, creatively but like I felt for them so much I'm still friends with some of them. Um, and just to be in that position where like you know people celebrate the anniversary of your game or they put it on lists they say it was pivotal or whatever they want to talk to you about it uh i never have lost sight of how lucky sure i am yeah. and how fortunate that is and how rarefied that is and i look at the people like i know ed boone he's a super sweet guy he was one of the nice guys at midway who like still once in a while you know, says a thing through social media or I saw him at a party in LA a few years ago and he was real nice to me, you know, like he's just a sweet, interesting, humble dude. Yeah. Uh, And he's singularly worked on Mortal Kombat for whatever it is, 30 years now or whatever. That's a guy you should interview. I don't know if you have (laughs) yet or not, but he loves comic books and Mortal Kombat. And I'm always like, I want to scratch the surface and see what else is because he seems to be a person with lots of depth, you know? Yeah. Um, But like every now and then there's somebody like that, which is like, the whole world has told him that mortal combat is cool right you know there have been movies and like people post raiden memes and um totality yep. <laughs> or you know whatever get over here um and he's always got all these interesting anecdotes about the history of it and um you know you look at somebody like brenda romero who's been in games for 30 years and has had such ups and downs and worked in the art side of things and Lives in Ireland with John Romero now, and they just made their gangster game. Yeah, I think 40 years. 40? My gosh. She started yeah. in the early 80s. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, she worked on Jagged Alliance, which yeah. was like one of my mm-hmm. favorite post XCOM games, I guess, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just like, then they're, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of the like, all the developers I've known yep. their, their crazy histories and the people that have never been recognized for what they should have done or as they should have been yeah, rather yep. they, they've never been recognized as they should have been as much as they should have been and then the people that have knocked it out of the park and gotten all the accolades and the people that toil in silence and frustration and um, <laughs> it's crazy it's 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 a wild industry and every time I think it's like you know, you know. Some we we started. I started working with a young guy the other day who said, "I feel like I'm coming in on the end of a story sometimes," and I was like, "Dude, you're coming in on the beginning yeah. of the story. Like, what are you talking about? Like, um, yeah."
1: Cool. All right. Well, that maybe that's a good place to end it. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks. I, I appreciate. I really appreciate this. I think we're uh, gonna yeah. like it. A
0: lot Well. Thanks for having me. <music>